boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Cut Shit Get Fit. This is episode 236, and it's a special one because I took the top four best podcast episodes of 2016 and I compiled them all together and I am really excited to share this with you because a lot of times when I listen to a podcast myself, I don't ever really scroll back through the years of content. I just kind of look for something that looks interesting to me. So I want to kind of start this new trend of compiling episodes together in a bunch that, you know, for example, these four are from 2016. And, you know, maybe you started listening to my podcast a little late and you missed them and you haven't scrolled through your phone on iTunes that far to actually find them. So I want to resurface them because they still have a lot of great information. And who knows, it might spark something in your life to change for the better. So without further ado, the first one. These are the most listened episodes of 2016, and number one is the lovely Georgie Fear, who is what I call a nutritional ninja. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. We have another awesome guest today for you guys. Her name is Georgie Fear. She is a dietitian and the author of Lean Habits. Say hello. Hi, pleased to uh, be here and nice to meet your guests and see you again, Rafal. Perfect. So to start us off, can you just tell us who you are, what you do, and kind of go from there? Yeah. Uh, so my name is Georgie Fear. As you said, I'm a registered dietitian and a CSSD, which is an acronym nobody knows. That means <laughs> I have a board uh, certification in sports nutrition. Um, let's see, what do I do? I do nutrition coaching. That's, that's my gig, and I do it uh, all online, which is kind of a unique niche. I, I, like most people, I started out working with people individually. Um, I worked in hospitals doing nutrition, and I've worked in gyms, and I've worked in a bariatric surgery clinic, so various you know, medical as well as kind of you know, non-clinical applications. Um, and I really settled on just working with general population and people that wanted to like you said, get fit and improve their health more than people that were sick. I just, I love, I love Joe and Jane average. <laughs> definitely. And yeah, I'm, I'm super uh, interested in why people eat what they eat. So I definitely have a high psychological bent to my, um, you know, kind of focus on it. And I, I don't do anything alone. I, um, so I, I co-own one by one nutrition together with my husband, Roland. And we also have a partner, Josh Hillis. And, and uh, so the three of us are kind of you know, trying to change the industry to make nutrition coaching more effective, more kind, uh, and you know, more accessible to people that have, like, everybody that's failed diets, we want them. We, we want them to succeed because we know it's possible. So, and we have some great coaches that work for us. So, yeah, so we're just a, a little, little army on the internet coaching people. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so the next thing I was going to ask you is kind of diving into your book. And I love your book, by the way. Like the moment I got it, I think I read it within a day because it's just one thing after another. I just found it interesting. And Thank I'm kinda, you. <laughs> no problem. Uh, so I really liked how you had all these habits list, listed down from like 1 to 16, I believe. But the first four, like I think you call them your core habits, 
Why are those the core habits and not like anything else? The, uh, well, as we all know, there's, there's so many moving parts to having what we would call, you know, quote, good nutrition or a diet and lifestyle that are going to get you the body you want. It's not, it's not one thing. It's not a single factor ever. So the complexity of it can, can be most people's downfall. You know, they try and there's so much information out there and they figure, oh, I need to eat more protein and less candy. And I should watch the beer, but drink more water. And I need to get more sleep. And nobody knows where to prioritize any of this. And there's no like, you know, life project manager that comes in and is like, this is the most important thing to do first. Let's, let's start there. So that's kind of, um, you know, why I feel that a structure is needed. And if you do the big stuff first, you're less likely to spin your wheels than if you start trying to fix all the details, but then you have this like big, you know, rock that's holding you back. So, so the core four habits in the book are to eat three or four times a day and not snack between meals or eat lots of mini meals. Um, and that's one that I'm sure we'll come back to because that's generally the most surprising one for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one is to feel hungry for 30 to 60 minutes before you eat. Again, this is a fat loss specific kind of uh, specification on that one. And we, we do modify it for people that want to build muscle or let's say they're pregnant. Um, and weight loss is not the prime goal. But for most people, it is fat loss. And 30 to 60 minutes of hunger before you eat each time is a nice, simple way to get into uh, a sustainable calorie deficit without drastically underfeeding yourself. Yeah. Um, a third one of the core four is uh, what we call eating just enough. And that's essentially stopping when you're satisfied and have had, you know, just enough food so that you're going to get to your next meal, feeling that 30 to 60 minutes of hunger, um, but not stuffing yourself to where you're, where you're uncomfortable or you won't be hungry for your next meal. So um, that is, in my opinion, probably one of the toughest things for most people out of the core four is to like really get that eating just enough. And then the fourth one is to eat mostly whole foods. Because as we all know, even if you practice only eating when you're hungry and you stop when you're satisfied and don't eat until you're stuffed, if your diet consists of you know Pop-Tarts and Pepsi, <laughs> then you can still get, it's going to take a lot of calories to get satisfied. So, uh, so just to help the natural mechanisms work in their best way, we want to make sure our diet's mostly unprocessed foods. And most is really important. It's not about hundred percent processed foods, just most of your, most of your plate, uh, a little chocolate and a muffin here and there certainly feds. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's kind of go back to the habit number one with the three and four meals, because I think a lot of people now, when they hear that, they're like, oh, I thought I was supposed to eat every three hours, at least six meals a day. So yeah. what's the science behind that and what's the benefit? Sure. And the first thing to say is like when I was uncovering that research, I did not like it <laughs> yeah. because I was eating six times a day and I like eating. And anyone telling me that you need to eat less frequently was like, no, say it ain't so. Um, but it, it turns out that small frequent meals work really well for getting more calories into somebody that's, um, you know, losing weight to try and promote a higher calorie intake. And that was always a bit of a head scratcher for me as a dietitian because we hear, you know, when you have, you know, patients that are wasting away and you're trying to promote weight gain, you know, promote feeding every few hours because then they won't get too full and they'll get more calories in than if they try and eat three square meals. And I'm like, and then I hear all these fat loss people saying, 
well, eat six times a day because you'll eat less. And it's like, this doesn't match somewhere. And so, you know, Roland and I uh, were kind of looking at this question together and there has to be some sort of data on it. So 2012 was like the year of research of this question. And we started to pull out, um, you know, my background in research, I did everything but the dissertation of a PhD. So I'm like five years of school, no PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of term bills, no paper at the end. Um, so I have quite a research background in the, the brain mechanisms that control energy intake. So I started going back through the papers that I had and the, the research sources that I know. And, you know, looking like, what does the science say if I put aside my own bias toward wanting to eat often? <laughs> and it actually seems that when um, we eat more substantial meals and therefore have more hours between them, over the course of the day, it ends up resulting in less hunger at the same calorie intake. So if somebody's, like, if you have two groups of people and they're controlling total calories in, like, we're only giving you people 1,800 calories, no matter how much you cream and scry, your own uh, cry and scream, <laughs> you're only getting 1,800 calories, and you ask them to rate their hunger and fullness cues throughout the day, if you give them to one group in, in you know, three meals and the other one, you give them 12 little meals. The group that actually gets fed 12 tiny little meals suffers from more hunger throughout the day because they're not getting completely satisfied. Their hunger never gets turned completely off. And, you know, that's not once that's a, you know, just my example of several types of studies kind of lumped together. That's not one study. Um, and it, it seems that somewhere around the 400 calorie mark, we're beginning to really get the full benefit from all of our appetite cues. So, um, so yeah, it, it takes meals of a certain size, and I don't get into macros too much in that quest in that first chapter because now you gotta stay focused. Yeah. But part of the reason behind that is because there's, you know, many hormones that lead to satiety and many gut peptides, and you they tend to be triggered by separate macronutrients. So if you want to get all of you know, this category, you need to get enough protein. And then if you want to get enough of this signaling going, you need to get enough fat. And if you want to get enough of this signaling from insulin and the glucose sensing neurons in your hypothalamus, then you need to get enough carbohydrates. And then there's the walls of your stomach, which they have pressured stretch receptors. And so they want to trigger a certain volume. So if you make meals that are too small, you just can't hit all of those pathways. So it's, does that, does that paint a kind of clear picture or am I just no, no, definitely, babbling definitely. idiot here? <laughs> no, 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 that was really good. Um, I think also it's like if people were used to the whole like five to six meals a day and like their snack is an apple and a handful of almonds and you look down at it and you're like, man, this is kind of depressing. I wish I could eat more. Yeah. I think it's almost like when they look at that, they're higher chance to like, you know what, I'm going to have some more. And then you have, you know, a surplus of calories and they're like, oh, why am I not losing weight? <laughs> I know. And it's, it's so frustrating as an individual when you're, cause it takes work. Like, you know, nobody's eating six small meals a day because it's like easy, yeah. right? Like it takes mental focus and restraint to be like, I'm going to manage my meal size. I'm not, you're essentially fighting your biology to not eat a full meal. And like every woman that's dieted done that is, is, is very aware. Like, I want to eat when I'm, like, you know, wiping the inside of my yogurt container. Like, I want more. <laughs> I'm fighting that to get dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so letting yourself be 
like, you know, you can actually eat more. And like, when you get that satisfied feeling, you're not going to feel like you're in hunger purgatory or where, you know, you're a little bit crazy because I think a lot of women, uh, I characterize women because I know them the best, but men are not immune to this by any means. Um, you start to feel like there's, you have a screw loose because you're like finishing one meal and thinking about the next one already. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not you. That's your biology. And amazing things happen when I made the kind of gradual, reluctant, tail-dragging transition (laughs) in eating more space between them. I was amazed how much the rest of my life opened up because I didn't have food on the brain all the time between meals because when you actually get satisfied, your brain goes off to other things. You start thinking about like, where do I want to travel? What do I want to do today? Uh, You know, you just you have more of yourself to give to your relationships and your job and your family when you're not like how many minutes until I can you know open that yeah 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 <laughs> yeah like for myself like when I started intermittent fasting that was a big one because now I didn't have to worry about waking up extra early getting my breakfast in and then like starving until three hours after to like chug a shake down and I'm like oh when's lunch gonna come totally and then, yeah and then the moment I uh switched over to the whole, I think I was doing 16 and 8, where I had a 16-hour window of fasting and an 8-hour window of eating, and I'd split it up into three meals. I was like, this is a lot better than always looking at my watch, hoping for my next meal to be already here. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So are you still doing uh, intermittent fasting, and how are you liking it? Uh, So I remember reading about it probably like now maybe three or four years ago. And I was like, you know what? I got to give it a try. And I told myself I would probably do it just for a month to see what all the fuss was about. Yeah. And then ever since then, I've never gone back because it was like, this is so much easier. I wake up, have some coffee, go to work, and then just worry about lunch. And then it's a bigger meal and I feel awesome, full, and don't have to worry about anything else. That's awesome. Have you, um, did you have any goals like were you trying to gain mass or get stronger or lose fat or, or do anything there? Or was it simply about like, oh, this is seemingly an easier way? Um, well, it was just more of an experiment. And then um, I did notice that my weight did not fluctuate as much as it did. And then I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, this is like a bulletproof way of not eating like over your calorie count because to a point, like you only have eight hours to eat so you can't really gorge yourself that much <laughs> right right well some people manage to some people <laughs> manage to like it's it's pretty amazing like how much uh you know coconut oil based treats uh, a paleo eater can eat in a short yeah. period of time <laughs> yeah definitely but uh yeah i hear you like if you have if you're trying to stick to whole foods then you know some of your stomach real estate is taken up by vegetables then uh yeah, there's, there's a natural kind of regulatory mechanism in there. Definitely. And I think that kind of goes into your next habit of like mastering your hunger. Because I remember when I first started, I think the first two weeks, those mornings were kind of tough, like stomach growling, but eventually it just got easier and easier. And then I didn't get hungry until, you know, 12 o'clock was my first meal. And right on the dot, I would always get hungry around that time. Yeah. Isn't that cool how your body adjusts? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And um, I think, like, for most people, when they see, like, the three or four meals, like, how, how many hours in between would that be, like, four or five, like, depending on the person's day? I typically say four to six. Okay. Um, and it depends, of course, on if you're doing three meals or four meals. 
Yeah. Like some people find that three feels best for them. Some people find that four feels best for them. There's no superiority. You know, I think sometimes people think it's a contest of like who can eat the fewest meals. That is not, 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 not the goal. Um, it also tends to, there's some individuality in there in terms of if somebody is like a, like really and truly loves low calorie density foods. Like I love vegetables. Even yeah. as a kid, I loved vegetables. Um, if I fill up on a lot of vegetables, I'm probably going to need four meals just because they're lower calorie density. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if somebody is like, you know, I really appreciate the being able to eat more fat or more calorie dense foods, more red meats, then they may find that it just works out fine for them on three meals because, you know, their, their hunger cues adjust and when they eat till satisfied, it just works out to be three. So... Um, I was going to ask, like, what's kind of your tips or tricks trying to master the whole, like, hunger shift when you're, say, you're going to try doing a three to four meals? Like, what should they be focusing on? Maybe they're not eating a certain amount of food that's not kind of getting them over to the next hump. Sure. Um, Well, a lot of times with everything, my recommendation is to take it slow. Like, if you're eating seven times a day, go to six. Like, you don't have to jump to three or four. I'm very much like a timid (laughs) one small step at a time. I describe myself in the book as the type of person that takes an hour to get into a swimming pool (laughs) because I want to get in, like, one inch at a time. Um, So there's no need to to just, like, dive in, especially if somebody's having head games. Like, I'm afraid of getting hungry or I anticipate getting hungry. is going to be really, really unpleasant, and they're feeling upset by that. You know, that's... That's very real. That's something to work with and not push through. So um, if somebody, it, it all, it matters where somebody's beginning. So let's say somebody's currently uh, addressing hunger the instant they feel it, or they're preventing hunger by, you know, just eating on the schedule, eating snacks, you know, I never leave the house without three bars in my purse, that type of thing. Then just feeling hunger for a few minutes and just letting it be there is light years different than approaching hunger like it's a flesh-eating virus yeah. that like must be eliminated the second you find it. So for me personally, and I find for a lot of my clients, it's, it's really just framing hunger differently in your mind um, as something that's healthy. It's a perfectly normal, healthy sensation to feel hunger just the same as it is to get thirsty, feel sleepy, or feel like you have to use the restroom. Just completely normal. But uh, to many people, me included, hunger was like this set-apart demon danger signal. (laughs) And, you know, I, I come from a background that has been impacted by disordered eating. And I think a lot of women that have either been through that or they've just uh, you know, done too many diets and they've had too many bad experiences of being hungry for hour after hour, you start to hate it because you've had too much of it. And it's a bit of a relearning experience to realize, oh, okay, so what was bad was going hungry for hour after hour after hour after hour and my hair falling out and feeling weak. This is different. This is like 30 minutes of feeling a sensation in my stomach. It's, it's safe. It's healthy. It's okay. Um, so kind of just de-alarming yourself. Um, and then with that, once somebody's like, okay, I can feel five minutes of hunger and stay calm, then just it kind of naturally progresses from there. And the most awesome thing that's really surprising to everybody is that the people who hate hunger often start to find that they like hunger, not to the level that they're going to 
you know, underfeed themselves or starve themselves, uh, but to the level where they find it's reassuring. Because if you start out and hunger's freaking you out, it's often because it feels like it's like you're at risk or it's not safe, you know, we like the safety and assurance of getting rid of it. But when you start to realize that having your hunger show up like nice and repeatable, like 12 noon, you know, before lunch, you start to feel that hunger, that starts to become a reassuring pattern that clues you in, you're not eating too much. You're eating appropriately. Your body is, you know, you're, you're doing what your body needs to attain its healthiest body weight and rock on. So it starts to feel really good when you get hungry. Yeah. I think a lot of people look at hunger as like a panic mode, yeah. but you know, I got to tell people like a good idea is just play detective with your body. Like write down what time you got hungry and kind of see where it leads to. And then the same thing the next day and you kind of kind of find a pattern and just kind of exploring your body of how it's changing over time. Yeah, that, that's a great way to do it. Um, and what I like about the, the writing down what time you got hungry and noticing it is when you keep a log like that, you start to get data that you didn't um, notice when you were just kind of going about your day. And what I mean by that is we tend to not notice the hours we aren't feeling hungry. But we notice the hours that we are feeling hungry. Therefore, it's easy to look back over the day and say, I have been hungry all of the time. Or I've been hungry 75% of my waking hours. When you actually write it down, it's like, oh, maybe it was only an hour or two here and there. And I didn't really realize that from three or four, I didn't even know, you know, notice any hunger. Definitely. So, yeah. Um, kind of jumping into your next habit of just eating enough. What are your like recommendations for like portion sizes and things like that? It's amazing how different people's needs are, which makes this incredibly, <laughs> incredibly difficult. So the way I, the lowest tech way to describe it is to use the kind of bell-shaped graph that's in the book, which is like the only figure in the book. Um, and basically, if you, if you picture your fullness when you're eating as something like a hill where at the beginning you don't feel that good, and you start to feel better and better and better, and the line goes up as you eat. And then at some point, you feel pretty darn good. And if you keep eating, you start to feel worse because you start to feel overfull and a little bit of pain. And oh, now I want to unbutton my pants. And <laughs> you start to, the line comes back down. You're starting to feel less good. I usually just tell people, can you land on top of the hill? And it's a, it's round. There's a lot of room up there, so you don't have to hit like one specific bite that's like. That is the golden, shimmering, just enough bite. It's like, you know, let's not stop when you're still hungry. And let's not go until you're uncomfortable. Like just aim for that nice, wide middle zone. Um, and for a lot of people, that's challenging enough. Because they've been doing so much of the stopping when I'm still hungry because I thought that was how many calories I should have. Or going until they're over full because the food tastes good. Yeah. So usually we start with kind of just aiming for that green zone, as we call it. Um, once somebody's hitting the green zone, there's a few ways to do it. We can look at um, what their measurements are doing. So if somebody is losing fat and they're in the green zone, you, there's no need to get more specific or prescriptive than that. It's just like, hey, guess what? You're nailing it. Awesome. Uh, if somebody does need a bit more guidance in terms of like what's an appropriate size meal for an adult, uh, I tend to say let's start with one plate. So if you're eating, you know, if you're getting chickens, let's just see how you do with one plate of food. And in terms of ratios, I tend to say if you can get about half your plate 
being fruits or vegetables and or and a quarter of your plate being some kind of starch or grain or carbohydrate, and then a quarter of your plate being about a you know palm size of protein, you're, you're doing better than most Americans or North Americans are. So um, that's a good place to start. And then of course there's adjustments. You know, somebody that's a a six four athlete is going to need to adjust that plate. So um, so yeah, and then we kind of individualize from there. And, and that's why there's coaching. You know, it's like, I, trust me, I don't make a living selling these books. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm lucky, I could like buy a cup of coffee. Um, but it's, it's the information is what most people need. And then some people just need a little bit of more support to help them stick it out, get through those rough moments and personalize as that example. Yeah, I think it's tough for the average person because you go on like Facebook or Instagram and you constantly see all the marketing on like, you should be doing this diet, you should be doing that diet, you shouldn't be eating this. And you're like, so what the hell am I supposed to eat? True. Yeah, very, very true. It's uh, a lot of people just kind of filter their incoming media because they just get tired of seeing the, yeah. I don't know, the fitspiration and, you know. Different guys and girls, yeah. Yeah, like, like <laughs> models in underwear doing curls, and you're like, really? Like, come on. <laughs> Just yeah. want a dinner idea. <laughs> and it almost like gets you into like a rabbit hole of like, I need to find that next thing that is going to work for me, and I'm going to lose like 60 pounds in one month. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's 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 one of the toughest things because there's I have a lot of good news that I feel like we get to share with people, which is like, you don't have to starve yourself. You don't have to live off of celery. Like you can eat treats. Like you can have some chocolate. Like I have clients that, you know, they find ways to work in ice cream and they have pizza once a week and they have, you know, the foods that they like, the, the beer does not have to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's good news that you don't have to be hungry all that much, like 30 to 60 minutes before you eat each day. You know, could only be 90 minutes of hunger out of the entire 24 hours you're awake. And if that's the weight loss, you know, margin, that's like, that's not so bad compared to some of the, the other things out there. But the tough thing is that there's no way to beat around the bush that you're not going to lose 10 pounds a week. It's yeah. just not going to happen. Like for most people, it's more realistic to say, like, probably one pound a week would be really, really good. And for a lot of people, especially if you don't want to be all that uncomfortable, half a pound a week. And but think about where that plays out. Like that's, that is a whole different looking you in a year. Yeah. I think the average person has probably done at least a, a handful of those crash diets. And then, you know, if they become my client and I tell them this, they're like, really that slow? Like, come on. <laughs> I know. It's tough, but um, that's kind of like what they have in the back of their head that they're able to lose all that weight but then the moment they go off that crash diet they're going to just shoot right back up to where they were and maybe even worse exactly yeah and that's the that's how the conversation usually goes for me too you know we'll say that it seems slow i point out that you know when you did that thing that that you did a few years ago and you lost all that weight really fast one you were a lot more uncomfortable you weren't having like look at your your food log here like you're you're eating some treats and you're, you know, you're enjoying not being on a diet. So the fact that you're losing a half pound a week or one pound a week is nothing to sneeze at because you're, you're much happier than you were then. And you gained all that weight back. Like, I don't think you're going to gain this weight back because we've got, well, we've got data on thousands of people by now that says that, you know, people keep weight off when they lose it in this manner. So 
the slowness is just uh, part of the part of the package. I just yeah, I just tell people like you got to play the game of the marathon and not the sprint because the people sprinting is just a short little distance and you get like that small little satisfaction, but doing that whole marathon of hard work pays off a lot more in the end. True, true. One of the things that we've uh, kind of transitioned into, um, you know, language-wise, since the book came out in 2015, was we used to talk about everything as being habits. You know, all these behaviors are like forming healthy habits, forming healthy habits. And one of the, the things that we're telling people more lately is that you're building skills, because yes, the skills play out in you doing certain behaviors, like eating vegetables at every meal, but the skills also are, like you can't unlearn them. Like once you know how to make vegetables tasty, or once you know how to tell when you've had enough to eat, like that is, that's like a lifelong thing once you have that skill. So um, people kind of take to it differently when they look at, all of this like as a set of nutrition skills that will take a bit of time to learn but then once you have them you're so set yeah definitely i think when people like start any kind of diet or challenge they look at all the things they can't do and look at them as like restrictions and then i just you know the day before that diet they're going to binge eat like crazy knowing that they can't do whatever they want to do. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I call that last supper ring. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Definitely. So how do, you, um, how do you work through that with your clients? Because it sounds like you, you hear that as well. <laughs> People are like bracing for you to lay the rules down. Yeah, well, like um, in a few weeks, I'm doing a thing called a transformation challenge. I already had one client like, oh, I'm going to be grocery shopping tomorrow. Like, what am I not allowed to eat? And I'm like... No, you're, you're allowed to eat and it's just going to be, you know, like I basically made all different habits for people to focus on every single week. And it's not like you're not allowed to eat this. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do whatever. It's just small, simple little steps that you can do every single day and not even think about it. And then overall, when you're done the eight weeks, you're going to be going off on your own and you're going to be fine. Yeah. So it was like you could essentially eat really anything just not in abundance. <laughs> yeah, don't steal it and don't eat it until you paid for it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's like, it's just like education. Like, I look at it as almost like karate where, you know, you're at a white belt. You can't do what a black belt can do just yet, but let's learn the skills to get there. And you're never, like you said, you're never going to forget those skills when you get to a black belt because they're just repeated so many freaking times that it's just embedded in your brain. Yeah, yeah. And... Doesn't it kind of suck, though, to, like, here, you're just a beginner at this. Yeah. Somebody's like, I've been dieting since I was 10. Yeah. But, uh, like, that's the kind of, uh, it, it's not good and it's not bad because I can see both. Like, on one hand, it's like, doesn't it suck that you've been dieting for 25 years Yeah. and no one's taught you anything? But at the same time, like, don't blame yourself for being a beginner. Nobody taught you how to use your hunger cues or how to make your meals the right size and timing to give you the most satisfaction and the least hunger so it's not your fault that this hasn't worked out like nobody's taught you this stuff nobody taught me this stuff so it it would be great like i wish they taught this in schools like this is what hunger actually feels like yeah like right in there with like this is blue and green (laughs) yeah (laughs) Oh, 
like I, in a perfect world, I think, you know, if you got a coaching client and you had, you know, whatever, say a full year program and every week they're supposed to hit homework and they do it. And then after that full year, they're off and ready. But I find like that almost never happens. So my question for you is like, at what point do you, why do clients or just people in general trying to eat healthier fail miserably like off and on? I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean they uh, fail miserably? Uh, cause like, say the average person, they'll like, you know, they want to get healthy. They're starting to eat better. And then out of nowhere, there's one week where they're not doing what they're supposed to do. The next week, they kind of come back and then they kind of fall off the wagon and kind of, you know, going back and forth of doing the right things and not the right things. Sure. Well, I think everybody can identify with, uh, it's easier to think about it as all or nothing. Yeah. Like it's much easier to be like on or off. So like the place we're staying now has all these like really cool lighting fixtures and it's, <laughs> there's like, it's not just a dimmer switch. It's like a dimmer switch with like 10 settings between <laughs> the bright and the off. And so wouldn't you know that my husband and I are like, no, make it one lighter. No, no, no. I want a little darker. Well, I can't see my food. Like, make it a little lighter during dinner time. Yeah. And <laughs> but here are these discussions that we never had at home where the light was on or off. And so it's like you know, the same when you're looking at your your eating. Like, am I on the diet or am I off the diet? It's much simpler conceptually than if you're thinking, well, okay, so I ate some food that was more high fat today, but you know what? I can still drink my water. I can still make sure I get a good amount of sleep. I can still uh, make sure I get some vegetables in at dinner, even if I had donuts with lunch. Like doing some of the skills and not just quitting is what keeps people in it for the long term and that's that's what makes this doable even if you're going on vacation or you have a, a birthday and you say you know I want to eat cake I want to eat two pieces of cake I, you know I, I don't want to be in a calorie deficit that day well fine you don't have to like there's you just kind of pick and choose what you want to do on a certain day and if, if you just keep doing something each day then you're staying in the game and you keep practicing and um it's just about not stopping yeah it's almost interesting where like you know people are doing really good and then yeah they go have a donut and then from that moment they're like well i already screwed up my whole day it's just going to keep going this way where you could just tell yourself, like, no, 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 like, my next meal, it's going to be perfect, it's all good. But it's just interesting to me that, you know, people can cheat with, like, something small, and then their whole day can go downhill from there. Yeah, I think um, the expectation is huge. Yeah. Like, are you embarking on each day with an expectation that you're going to eat, quote, perfectly? Or are you looking at the next year of your life, like, you're going to eat perfectly for a year? Like... A donut for a year is just not in the cards for a lot of people. So realistic expectations are like one of the best ways you can arm yourself going in. And, oh, everybody at One by One Nutrition, like every single coach in this company has that. Like we just, we throw that at people like water balloons when they first get in. It's like, you're going to mess up. You're going to overeat when you didn't mean to. You're going to trip and fall and it's okay. We're all tripping and falling and laughing at each other. And we just keep getting up and going. Like you just, yeah, we're going to bobble it. We're beginners, right? Yeah. And that's what like, life is. Really. Yeah, we're going to strike out, air ball, whiff. <laughs> oops. Like it's no big deal. We just say, oops, you know, keep it lighthearted and go back to practicing at your next opportunity. You're, you're a beginner. You're allowed to make all the mistakes. That's the great part about being a beginner. No one expects you to be good at this. Yeah. 
So yeah, over time you get better, you have fewer mistakes and you, you learn something every time that you overeat or quote mess up. Now my next question for you is when you deal with uh, coaching clients and like maybe they have signs of say like an eating disorder or emotional eating, like how do you approach them and how do you kind of get them to overcome that struggle? Well, all coaching is driven forward by what the client wants. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes to us, as many people do, and they say, you know, I have an unhealthy relationship with food for this reason or that reason, and I want to get better, that is a much better place to start with than somebody that comes to you and says, I want to lose 10 pounds, and then you start to find out that they have no excess weight to lose. Yeah. And that they're pro- if you're observing in someone an unhealthy relationship with food that, that they are not aware of or they're in denial of, that's very different because that person may not be ready or want to work on it. And that's, no, they're an adult. That's their, their right to, to not work on that at this point. Um, ethically, you know, I, I think I can speak for all, all of us um, in my company that if somebody wants to lose weight, but we feel like it's not in, their uh, best interest in terms of their overall well-being. Like we're not going to uh, be part of that journey. You know, we we don't work with figure competitors or people that want to get on a bodybuilding stage just because that's not our thing. Mm-hmm. Like there are people that love that, that are pros and experts in that, and that's awesome. They will be a better person to have on your side if that's what you want to do than somebody on my team. Um, we do encounter a lot of people that deal with emotional eating. And we have skills geared specifically toward, um, you know, strengthening yourself and overcoming emotional eating, just like we have skills to help people overcome overeating and calorie excess. So what some of those are would be based around, you have to get some skills around your emotions and finding ways to handle your emotions and respond to your emotions differently. Because if, you're, if you have a history of reacting with food, the easiest thing to do is to keep reacting with food. And so to change that, uh, the first level is probably just feeling the different signals that you're getting from not only your body as in hunger, but also from your mind and your, your emotions. So feeling, oh, okay, I'm starting to get frustrated is a step that is uh, not where a lot of people are. Like a lot of people just recognize, I feel bad and I want food now. And it takes a bit of practice to get at like, okay, you feel bad. What are you feeling? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling frustrated? Are you feeling disappointed? Like let's get a little more skill at identifying those emotions. And then we can look at what are more appropriate actions to take. So, for example, if if somebody's noticing that they're regularly eating chocolate out of disappointment, then we can, you know, first start with doing something differently when you're disappointed. And second, we can deal with the prevalence of disappointment in that person's life by looking at, like, what are your expectations that are so frequently not being met by reality? And... That's just, that's awesome. I think that's like a lot of our favorite stuff to do is not only help somebody lose the extra weight, but realize that losing the extra weight is going to equip them with skills that make them a happier, more balanced person. It's just overall well-being improves. Um, 
So I guess that was a little bit of a bird walk uh, away from disordered eating because emotional eating disorder eating are very, they're related but encompass a lot of different things. Yeah. If somebody has um, symptoms of an eating disorder, such as an inability to maintain a minimally healthful body weight, then that's somebody that's going to be best off being seen by uh, a psychologist uh, or another mental health professional more so than a dietitian or um, an online dietitian. Like, there's some wonderful things about nutrition coaching remotely. I can see people on their lunch hour. I talk to them while they're at their desk, whatever. But one of the downsides is that I can't put my eyes on a person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when somebody's dealing with an eating disorder, it's really, really important to have a doctor um, and other medical staff looking at you to make sure that you're, you know, to check you out and to see how you are looking and symptoms that you're having physically. So so for that reason, we, we decline to work with people that have anorexia nervosa. Um more commonly than that, we get people that have symptoms of disordered eating that aren't really an eating disorder, and they tend to respond really well to regular good nutrition practices, such as eating three meals a day or four meals a day, each of them being uh, a meal that you got hungry for and that you stop when you're satisfied because it can break people out of the pattern of skipping meals and starving and then overeating and making the cells feel bad and then trying to make up for that by compulsive exercise the next day. So we're kind of just breaking, like turning the dial down on the drama. Like let's just get some nice, stable, predictable self-care in here and some self-talk skills. Like how do you treat yourself? Are you kind to yourself? Are you mean to yourself? Are you forgiving and understanding? And do you have self-compassion? And so a lot of those skills uh, really do help people that have elements of disordered eating or just in an unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah. It almost seems like the more you learn about your clients, you're like, wow, I'm not even a trainer anymore or a coach. I'm like their personal like guidance counselor almost. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. And some clients don't want that. Yeah. And that's okay. Like I have, I have totally had clients be like, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. <laughs> They're like, Whoops. you know, I totally respect that. Let's go back to dinner planning. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I get so interested in the person and the why, and you know, what is contributing to them making these choices that, you know, I want to know about what's stressing them out and taking up some of their you know, uh, emotional energy during the day and, you know, what's stressing them out and drawing on them and keeping them up late at night. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's always with love, but you know, I guess a time or two, I have gotten a little too curious. People are like, yeah, I, can we just go back to talking about my food? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you really think like on average that stems like from emotional eating? Cause I can't remember who told me this or maybe I read it, but like an example was that if say when you were a child and you like fell over and your mother would come over and you know soothe you and she would give you like a cookie to make you feel better and that constant habit of you know you getting hurt mom gives you a treat will like translate into your adult life so anytime you felt sad about yourself you would eat something sweet knowing that it would make you feel better is that like an example or what do you think that's that's exactly the sort of thing that um you know, typically happens when we're young is it's prevalent to soothe ourselves with food. 
and that's not a bad thing. Like I don't mean to say that with judgment, but if we start to use that at the exclusion of all the other self-soothing things, like I'm not even self-soothing, but soothing others, like you can soothe your child with a hug or, you know, caressing their head or telling them it's going to be okay uh, with words. You can, you know, pick them up. You can sing to them. You can do so many things. So it's not like, oh my God, you have, you ruined your child for life because you gave them a cookie <laughs> to make them stop crying. Like it's certainly not that extent, but when we stop doing all of the other things and food is exclusively used, then it can become, you know, more of a problematic pattern because people lose those other abilities to self-soothe as they get older. And so if we rely exclusively on food for self-soothing, then every lump and bump in life that happens to us, whether it's physical injury or emotional hurt, we start to want that, that food. And it becomes a reinforcing pattern. And there's nothing kind of crazy about that. Like, who would not want to feel better when you are feeling distress or pain? Right? Like, this is a very protective mechanism. It's... Um, it's just a matter of discovering that there are other ways and that we can use those as well so that we don't excessively use food. Because we all know that if, you know, three times a year you have a horrible day and you decide you want a blizzard, that this is not a bad thing. Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not an eating problem. It, it starts to become a problem when it's impacting your physical health or when you're starting to not feel good about it or it's leading to an unhealthy body weight. And that doesn't happen from three times a year. That happens, you know, maybe if it's three times a week. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of frequency. I don't mean to say that, that all emotional eating is bad or all self-soothing is bad. But if you find that it's, if it's producing outcomes you don't like, then that's a, a, a nice time to see if you want to adjust your actions. How much do you think stress is involved with those kind of bad eating habits? It certainly is involved. Uh, with regard to how much, for some people, it's massive. You know, stress, um, so there's the first aspect of just habit forming. So if somebody's formed the habit of that's how they respond to stress, then clearly the more stress they're under, the more trouble they're going to have with the, that excess calorie intake. Yeah. Um, there are some people for whom stress makes them eat less, about 20% of the population. Um, so for them, it's not so much of a, a weight problem per se, but um, stress does also cause physical changes that make us want to eat more sugar and want to eat more high-fat foods and want to eat less nutritious foods. So somebody that's under chronic stress, they have, you know, they work 12-hour days, and then they have a long commute, it's, um, it's more likely that they're going to just eat an overall less nutritious diet because the stress is, you know, just kind of driving them to eat more immediate gratification foods. Yeah. Um, and in terms of working through that, because a lot of times we can't just get rid of the stress, it's, uh, you know, incorporating some activities that help unwind from the stress because some level of stress is healthy and the way we approach it, um, just like hunger, can make the difference between whether it's damaging to us or just makes us a bit stronger and we see things as a, you know, a challenge. So some level of stress can help us become more resilient, but you also need to have the, the counteracting time of you know, restorative sleep, some outdoors time, 
uh, a time when you're not working and doing something pleasurable. So those lifestyle elements come in. Um, as well as I, I talk with people about not using food when you're under that like really peak emotional intensity and high stress because it's actually more habit forming to put sugar in your mouth at that time than it would if you were just having it on a relaxed afternoon because chocolate sounded yummy. Yeah. I know I find uh, like a typical like stress reliever that probably most people go to is like one bottle of wine to themselves and then they call it a day. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I was just talking with somebody yesterday, uh, one of my clients and you know, like many people, she says like, I just want to come home and I'm so stressed and I want to calm down. Like, a glass of wine is so tempting because it works. Yeah. You know, like sometimes the shower doesn't do it. I'm still just thinking about work stuff when I'm in the shower. Um, and sometimes I'm too tired to exercise and the wine is like, man, there's no effort that needs to go in. I just, it's just right there and it's not expensive and it's easy. And um, yeah, alcohol definitely becomes a challenge for a lot of people. How do you usually work with that in, in your clients? Um, well, like when I get a good sense of how much they're drinking and I tell them like, I, I think majority of clients know that their drinking habits is probably not the best thing for them. So the moment I find out how much it is, I'm like, can you go with one less glass a week? And they're like, oh yeah, I guess so. Right. If you give them like something small, I find that it's not that big of a deal. They're more inclined to say, yeah, totally. Let's do that. Right. And it sounds like such a relief, I bet, compared yeah. to, like, they're ready for you to be like, okay, knock off the drinking. Yeah, definitely. I did have one client where, but this was more of his personality. I bet him $100 that he could not stop drinking for a month. Okay. And he took me up on the offer. He didn't drink for a month, and he lost, like, 24 pounds. And I was, like, hey, I was like, dude, this is awesome. He's like, perfect. I can start drinking again. I'm like, no. <laughs> That's not the point. And you gave him $100 to get started with. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. That's kind of almost beyond, I think, my scope, like, you can touch on it a little bit, but that's why I always kind of find like at what point should you maybe refer out and then when you do refer out to make it in a, you know, an environment that they don't feel like threatened, like you're coming after them that, no, I don't have a habit of this, this, and this. You I'm know? not addicted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, uh, I make a lot of referrals, um, for certain things more than others. Um, most of the referrals that I do are actually when I feel like somebody would benefit from seeing a mental health professional to due to depression or anxiety or just struggles with motivation. Like sometimes it comes out that like I feel like somebody's just having such a hard time taking care of themselves. It's not really a food issue. It's more of like a just... You know, they sound like they're dealing with uh, depression, but I can't diagnose that. It's out of my scope, so I say, yeah, I think it, it might be worth just seeing if you can get a little bit more help there. Alcohol, on the other hand, I have never made a referral. Mm -hmm. And here's why. Because <laughs> I've clearly had alcoholic clients. Because when we start to get at the fact that they may change everything else about their diet, but it's still the alcohol that's preventing them from getting results... Every time I've gotten to that point, which has not been many, I'd say five over the course of years and hundreds of clients, I'd say I've gotten five people down to the point where it was really only the alcohol left between them and the, their results, mm -hmm. they quit because they'd rather keep the alcohol. 
that's just been my my experience every time they're just not interested in changing the alcohol they will change everything else but not the alcohol um that's rare because most people i find are willing to change not cut out the alcohol but at least reduce it um and when i get somebody that just won't even reduce it that's usually not it's usually not going to go well yeah um but all that said if somebody's eating healthfully and even if they're not losing weight if there's you know it's better to keep the same amount of alcohol but at least be exercising and getting some vegetables in and getting some protein in like i'm sure it's better for their health than the fast food and alcohol diet yes definitely (laughs) yeah um i've had one person ask me if i thought she had trouble with alcohol because she was having such a hard time reducing it it was kind of like she would reduce it and then it would creep back up and she'd reduce it and it would creep back up and she asked me do i think she's an alcoholic and i said no because people who are as concerned about it um, like she was concerned that she was in denial and I basically said, no, you're not in denial because look how concerned you are. Like we talk about it every time. Yeah. You're clearly concerned about this. It's clearly in the forefront of your mind and you're working on it consistently. It's just a challenge. And for some people, it's always a bit of a challenge. Just like, you know, peanut butter is always a bit of a challenge. <laughs> oh, I can eat that. Like just by the spoonful. <laughs> Me too. I yeah. do. I eat, uh, I eat peanut butter every day and it's, uh, kind of like a running joke that, uh, you know, if, if I somehow del- um, developed a peanut allergy, I might waste away and die because it's, it's such a large proportion of my calories. Are you crunchy person or smooth? I prefer the smooth, but I like the natural ones that have a bit of a grain to them. Yeah. So it's not, um, completely, but I will, I will go either way in terms of the texture as long as it's salted. Yes, definitely. If there's no salt in the peanut butter, I am getting the salt shaker and salting it because <laughs> it's a crime. It's a crime. It's yeah. not salted. <laughs> Um, so I think that's all the questions I got for you, but can you... How did I do? Did I pass? Yeah, you did, with flying colors, yeah. <laughs> yes! Yeah. Um, can you just tell everybody what kind of, like, your next project is, where they can find you on the internet, on social media, and stuff like that? You bet. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> this is the first podcast that I've done since my website got hacked. Oh, so, wow. as you may have known, AskGeorgia.com was, like, you know, happily running since yeah. 2008. And, oh, it had, like, over 500 articles, and some jerk hacked it, and I had to uh, take it down. Um, but I have the database, and we will revive it like the Phoenix at some point. Mm-hmm. But uh, at AskGeorgia right now, there's just, like, this really simple kind of unattractive placeholder. <laughs> so if you want to track me down, I'm still very much alive and posting on Facebook, uh, there aren't too many people named Georgie Fear. You should be able to find me. Yes. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Georgie Fear RD. And I'm on Instagram. And I think that one's just Georgie Fear. And um, my company page, if you're you know, thinking nutrition counseling sounds like something that is in, or nutrition coaching, might be something that could help you. Uh, come check us out at onebyonenutrition.com. And everything's spelled out. So it's O-N-E-B-Y-O-N-E, onebyonenutrition.com. And actually, just yesterday, we opened up a few more spots for our group coaching. So we do the one-on-one coaching, um, and then we also do group coaching, which is a more affordable option, and um, people are really digging that. We we just started it last month, and we said, okay, we'll take 100 people, and we sold it out over a weekend. It was like wow, that's awesome. <laughs> a summer weekend, two days 
completely sold out the 100 spots and had to turn people away. So we just opened up a few more spots yesterday, and uh, I think there's still a few more open. But, uh, yeah, so I would love to hear from anybody out there. I love talking about nutrition, so you're not bothering me. Just say hello. Tell me why you're eating what you're eating, and uh, we'll chat. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a t- uh, ton of fun, and if you get more, more questions, I'm, I'm happy to come on and chat anytime. Perfect. Thank you. Boom, that's going to wrap up the first one. Next up is the amazing Tony Gentlecore. I've been following his career since I started in the industry, and whenever I meet a new coach or the coaches that I've been mentoring lately, I've been always kind of referring them to follow his work. He's a titan in the industry when it comes to strength training, performance, rehab, you name it. So without further ado, here's Tony Gentlecore. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I am your host, Rafal Matuszewski, and I got another awesome guest for you guys. His name is Tony Gentlecore. Say hello. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, what's up, Rafal? And I, I can't tell you how excited I am that I actually I get to swear on a podcast. <laughs> I mean, I try to act all professional and, you know, sound like I know what I'm talking about when I do these other podcasts, which, you know, it's... You know, swearing doesn't mean that I don't know what I'm talking about, but, you know, it's part of my nature to swear, so I'm excited. There you go. (laughs) Uh, So let's start off with uh, telling the audience who you are, what you do, and how you got into the industry. Yeah, so my name's Tony Janacore. I've been in the industry since 2002, uh, so I've been around for a little while, and I'm originally from uh, a small town in central New York. Uh, It's called Groton. I, I doubt anyone listening will know where that is. And um, I got in this industry uh, from a young age. So growing up in my small town, I I played every sport imaginable. I think there's a common theme amongst fitness professionals where uh, they play a lot of sports growing up. And that just kind of, there was like a natural progression well into the weight room. And then then there's a progression, well, now I can coach people in the weight room. So uh, I followed through with that. I was lucky enough to play uh, baseball at a high level. I played collegiate baseball and, um, pr- the pros didn't come calling. I had, I had some pro tryouts, but nothing, nothing panned out, unfortunately. So I finished my degree at Cortland state, which is again, near my hometown in New York. And it was either become a health teacher and wear a suit and tie every day or, um, you know, follow my concentration, which was health wellness promotion and, uh, work in a gym and wear sweatpants every day. So, uh, it was an easy choice. Yeah, <laughs> and, sweatpants are pretty um, sweet. <laughs> yeah, oh my god, it's like one of it's such a it's such a benefit. I get to wear sweatpants and t-shirts to work every day. Yeah, and um, but I worked as a personal trainer in in a commercial gym setting and in a corporate fitness setting for the first five years of my career. Three of which, or four of which, were in New York. Uh, actually, no, three of which were in New York, and two of which were in um, Connecticut and Massachusetts. And um, I, uh, I moved to Connecticut originally um, via Eric Cressy. Um, so he and I hooked up pretty earlier in our careers and were roommates for two years and moved to Boston. And um, we ended up opening up Cressy Sports Performance in 2007 along with Pete Dupuis. Uh, and I was there for eight years from 2007 till uh, this past fall in 2015. And um, you know, pretty proud of what we were accomplished with that facility. Like, it's a world-renowned facility, uh, you know, trains a ton of baseball players. You'd be hard-pressed to, like, name a baseball training facility and not have that name come up. 
And, um, and yeah, in 2015, in the fall, I uh, had a few opportunities come up in, within Boston. And now I'm kind of doing my own thing in a small studio space in Boston and training people out of there in a semi-private format and also uh, doing a fair bit of writing via my website and various sites that I write for and traveling for speaking engagements. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a pretty cool set up so uh, nice. you know I, I coach people um I'm, I'm definitely not one of those guys that writes about how to coach people and how to train people and then not coach people in real life um i still feel that that's pretty important but i'm certainly at a point in my career where i don't have to be coaching 40 50 hours a week which is nice yeah you know so i'm at a point now where i'm coaching around 15 to 20 hours per week which is great and then it just allows me a lot of opportunity to pursue my writing and you know uh make the website you know be able to continue to build that and then being very honored to get invited to speak you know around the country and the world to on strength and conditioning and fitness which is always a, a huge honor on my end so i i feel very fortunate Sweet. Awesome. Um, for the next question, I was just going to ask you, what's your kind of philosophy when it comes to nutrition and fat loss? Yeah, I just tell people to lift heavy shit and everything else to take care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I say that I'm kind of serious, but obviously I'm not. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, getting people into the mindset of, like, gravitating more towards performance-based goals. And that's not to downplay the aesthetic goals that some people have. And certainly there have been numerous cases within my career where somebody comes in and they are overweight or morbidly obese and they just, they need to lose weight. And it isn't just about losing fat. It's like they need to lose weight. Um, and of course I'm not taking the, the hard edged strength coach mentality with them. It's like, we just need to get you moving, um, you know, after a, a thorough assessment and then, you know, and we, yeah, get you moving. We can, we can work on doing carries and hinging and squatting and stuff like that. But, um, but yes, but in, in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it's kind of a, a funny thing that happens if I get, especially with my female clients, uh, getting them to, you know, a, a great example is like, I want to get them to do a, a strict body weight chin up. Um, you know, it, the amount of work and effort and time and sweat and just, balls to the wall training that's gonna that's gonna or maybe i should say uteri to the wall training um <laughs> is that it takes to get to that goal a lot of cool things are going to happen as far as far as like you know their shoulders popping in a dress and their butt looking good in a pair of jeans and you know they're not so dead set on what the scale is telling them what the mirror is telling them it's just it's just it's just they kind of focus on the the goal at hand and it might take them a couple months it might take them six months it might take them a year but while that whole process is going on of course i'm working with them to hone some nutritional strategies or um more more so behavioral stuff because i i have found in my career that especially with the nutrition side of things it's rarely ever an education thing for most people. I think most people know that going home and eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's before, before bed isn't a great nutritional choice. 
Uh, you know, that's that's obvious. I don't think pe people understand that. Um, but it's a, it's something. There's a roadblock in the way. There's some. There's some have or, or fail of, of um, forming a specific habit or there's some kind of mental roadblock that's getting in the way of like they're, they're making that choice instead of something that's going to get them towards what their goal is. So um, it's kind of working with them on that. You know, I'm not, I'm definitely not one of those coaches that's like, you need to omit all these carbs and all these fats or any specific food group, or you need to stop eating this. Like this food is bad. Um, Cause at the end of the day, uh, the, the most successful diet and the most successful training program is one that they're actually going to do and one that they're actually going to stick with long term. And to me, it's the long game where, where people are going to win. It's not so much doing some, some quick fix, four-week detox diet or, you know, like condensed training program. It's like I want them in it for the long haul. Um, and if I can get them to, to marry themselves to that idea that it's, it's really about – the, the process and not necessarily the outcome, um, I find that good things are going to happen. Um, you know, and, and going back to the nutrition thing, uh, a, a simple analogy, you know, as far as it not being an educational thing, but it's more of like a behavior change thing. So I, there's a lot of trainers out there who have clients who, from the time they leave work to driving home, they pass a million and one different fast food chain restaurants. And inevitably, they're going to go to Wendy's or they're going to go to Burger King or they're going to go to McDonald's. So rather than chastising them as being, you're stupid, you shouldn't be doing that, you got you to gotta kind of start educating them to start making better choices. So maybe it's one of those things where it's like, hey, instead of taking the left to McDonald's, how about we take a, a right uh, and go to Chipotle, where you can you can buy a um, you know a Mexican plate where it's just vegetables and meat, um, you know, and, and try to get them to start forming that habit, or, or or maybe it's just something as simple as getting them to eat. Hey, I want your goal now for this week to eat one vegetable a day for for a week. You know, so you're not telling them to eat eight cups of vegetables, yeah. <laughs> but it's just like, let's start with one, make that a habit. And then we, you know, in month two, we can start adding this and month three, we can start adding that. Um, that's, that's generally my approach. It's the long game. So I'm not, I'm not throwing out 18 different things in them all at once. It's like, let's work on one thing in the weight room. Let's work on one thing at home that you can do, whether it's, you know, buying cooking ware that you can actually cook food in. Um, that that it, it, it sounds. I mean, people laugh at that, but yeah. that is a big reason why a lot of people end up eating out a lot is they don't have cookware at home. So you know, if they have the utensils at home to use to actually cook meals, then the likelihood they'll actually use them might be a little bit higher. So it's just stuff like that that I that I kind of gravitate towards. And you know, I'm lucky enough, and I have a pretty good network of other professionals of nutritionists like Georgie Fear or Brian St. Pierre or the Precision Nutrition Crew, um, even even some uh, registered dietitians here in Boston that I can refer people to. Because, I mean, the nutrition part isn't necessarily my strong suit. Like, I, I know enough to kind of work with people as far as, like, building up habits and strategies and maybe making better choices that will get them towards their goals. But... Um, I, I always refer people out to, to the aforementioned people just because I feel like they that's their expertise and then they give out great information. Definitely. I think like like you said, like the small little changes over time will yeah. add up really quick. But a lot of people, like if you give them like a 30-day 
diet challenge. They're, it doesn't work. It's a yeah. band aid, right? Yeah. It's like, and, and inevitably, what ends up happening is that yeah, they'll lose weight um, and maybe a little bit of fat too, but they don't. They're not doing anything to solve the problem. They're just they're doing because people want to be told what to eat. Like, give me, give, okay, just tell me what I need to eat at breakfast, what I need to eat for lunch. Give me the macros. Give me the food choices. You tell them what to eat, and and maybe they'll do it. Um, but they'll get they'll, they might get results for the thirty days. But you're not you're not educating them. You're not making them autonomous. Like, and then they're just going to revert back to the same old habits. So um, our job as coaches, it behooves us to take the time to, whether it's yourself or with a team of other coaches that you work with or, you know, pointing them in the direction of good articles or resources that you know, but it's just getting people in the mindset, look, let's work on one or two things at once, make that a habit, make that a thing. And then the following month we'll add this and, or it might be drinking more water or taking some fish oil or, you know, eating, adding a healthy fat to their diet or, you know, whatever, taking them to the grocery store and actually teaching them how to, to shop properly. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a million and one different strategies to use, but I can't emphasize enough, like how important it is to take, take the slow route, like you know, slow and steady wins the race. It's a very cliched thing to say. Um, but I find it works very well. Cause I mean, I want, I want my clients to be autonomous. I want them to make it, I want to make it so they don't need me after X amount of time, like you know, they're they're good. But a funny thing happens is they they do end up staying, you know, because yeah. because they're they're they're, they're they have somebody, they have a coach that's watching them, make sure their technique is on point, and then keep them on task. But um, yeah, it, the the quick and the quick and easy stuff, as you know, they, it very rarely works. Yeah, it's almost like more like psychologically like pleasing that's, that you know, oh, I'm just gonna get you to do one thing, and they're like, oh, okay, well, yeah. You got to make it manageable, bite-sized yeah. chunks, right? It's the same thing when I'm coaching somebody. If I'm coaching a deadlift, if I'm coaching a squat, if I'm throwing out five, six different cues at once, it becomes overwhelming, and they feel like they're a failure. Like, oh my god, this guy's like correcting me nonstop. I must be a nightmare. I'm not doing anything right, yeah. um, you know. But if I focus on one thing at a time, like after they do a set, I'll say, hey, that here's what you did right. Like I always emphasize by showing what they're doing right or what I like, what I see. And that can go for the nutrition stuff too. Here's what you're doing well. This is what I like what you're doing. Here's what I want you to do on this set. You know, get your chest up a little bit more. Get some, get more, get more, get your lats engaged a little bit more. Like whatever the cue is. And it's just that one thing. And then they don't feel so overwhelmed, you know. And I, I'm not expecting perfection on day one, whether it is the strength and conditioning component or if it's the nutrition component, um, you know, that, that's, that's a roadblock too. That, that, that's a clusterfuck right there as far as people getting, it, getting that negative self-talk. Is like they, if they're, they're not perfect from day one, then it's a, then, okay, fuck it. I'm, I'm just going to revert back to what I, what I always do. Um, so, again, that's another thing that, um, that needs to happen too. It's just it, you, you can't expect perfection on day one. It, it is a slow process. Definitely. Now, going back to your comment of lifting heavy shit, like you have a point there because I've seen even like when I train my clients, like particularly women, if they can do a couple sets of body weight like chin ups, I'm like, yeah. your back is like shredded to bits and you're freaking yeah. strong. And what and what the, the what happened? It was it was kind of like an aha moment for me a few years ago when I was still at Cressy Sports Performance. Is I I was working with this woman um, and she wanted to get ready for her wedding, which of course is like, hey, let's get sexy, let's you know, like let, let's it's go time. Let's do we have we have four months, let's do it. And 
I think it was like in week one, she was like, well, and she was kind of like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, and she, she reads all the, you know, the, the magazines that are like, uh, at CVS and in the, in the, any store, which, you know, high rep, low weight, tricep kickbacks, like what type of cute exercises are we going to do? Like to like, and she pointed like at her tricep to make this less flabby, you know? And I was just like, we're going to deadlift. We're going to, we're going to squat. I want you to be able to do a chin up. Like I want, that's our performance. I, your, your, your programming is going to reflect you, us getting you to that goal. Like give me 60 days. We're just going to go, we're just going to go after it. And, and lo and behold, after 60 days, she hit it. And, and what do you think she said? Like her, her tricep looked amazing. Her delts were popping, you know, like her upper back looked great in a dress. And, you know, we didn't really do anything like quote unquote aesthetic training. And it's not to say that I didn't do other stuff. Of course we did a lot of stuff, but it was just getting her to marry herself to that goal of of a performance goal. And then really the aesthetic stuff just kind of take care, takes care of themselves. And the whole time, of course, I'm kind of reiterating to her, like, don't worry about the scale weight. It might not budge that much. You know, like, like, that's not the end all be all of progress. Um, and that takes a little bit of finagling, of course. But um, luckily, I'm, I'm married to a psychologist. So I can, <laughs> I, I have some Jedi mind tricks that I can, that I can learn from her. So, um, but it, 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 it never fails. Like, especially with my female clients, it's just getting them to just rein in on a, on a performance goal. And I don't care what that goal, it doesn't have to be the chin up. That's just one that I, that I, I find resonates with a lot of women because they, cause from a very, very young age, they're kind of programmed to think that, Oh, you can't do a chin up. Cause like, you know, I remember when I was in elementary and high school, the, the fitness standard tests where guys were, were, we're going to see how many chin ups you can do. And for women, it was, we're going to see how long you can, you were, it's the flex arm hang. So they're kind of like programmed at an early age to say, oh, boys do chin-ups, girls don't, um, you know, and it, 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 it's sad. And then, and then that, that just leads into adulthood where, you know, a lot of times it's just that, that mental roadblock where they're scared to look silly hanging off of a bar, hanging off of a chin-up bar and, like, people looking at them and pointing and making fun, which, of course, doesn't happen. But it's, very, it's a very common scene that I've come across where they just don't want to look silly. So, of course, they just kind of, like, shove it to the side and they'll, they'll do their lat pull downs or their, their uh, assisted or their machine assisted pull-outs, which are fine. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can do to, uh, in, that doesn't entail doing an actual chin-up that can build a chin-up. There's a lot of ground-based stuff we can do. You know, there's a lot of accommodating resistance stuff we can do. Um, but it's just building that confidence and, and showing them success from the get-go. Like, here's what you can do. Let's do that and crush it, and then we'll, we'll progress it from there. We'll progress it from there. Um, and, again, very much like we would with nutrition. It's just one step at a time. Yeah, like I really like using the deadlift with women because it's, like, easy every week if you're just adding just a little bit, and then eventually they get to the point where, like, oh, I'm deadlifting my body weight. Yeah, and I'm of like, course. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, like they're – and it's, like, a lot of times I have to point that out to them. I And I they'll, they'll, hit, they'll hit, like, a – no, I had a I had a one of my female clients like a month ago. She hit a 210 pound deadlift. Nice, right? And this is in the beginning where she wasn't like deadlifting at all. So she hit 210 pounds and she put the bar down. She's like, "Oh, okay, that was kind of cool." And I'm like, "I like that." Fuck! Do you realize what you just did? Like, I had to like, this is a big fucking deal. Like, yeah. Like, enjoy this. Like, you, this is a weight that you could not budge like three months ago. 
Like it was not budging off the ground, and you just crushed it for a rep or two, right? And um, and then it, it it does happen like that. That switch turns on, and it's like they get addicted to it, and that's when I feel like I get them. You know, where that that's that's the money right there. Is when, once that once that 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 switch is flipped. Um, so now the deadlift kind of bleeds over to a squat, or then okay, now we're going to hammer push-ups for reps, or now we're going to do whatever. It, it, it's amazing. Like strength, strength is a beautiful thing. So um, you know, I, that that is my go-to for pretty much everyone I train, male and female. Yeah, I like that when they catch on that like hey i'm getting strong and then they start asking you so when do you think i could hit over 200 yeah i'm like it's gonna take some time but we'll get there yeah. and then sometimes you got to pump the brakes like hey, hold on let's let's hit let's hit 150 first yeah. and then we can then we can worry about 200 but but yeah it's, it's great like i and that's just the role of the coach it's like sometimes my job is to I mean, I, I'm not trying to be the, I'm not like the super hyper go-getter, like, yay, coach. Like, I'm not, that isn't my style. Um, so but, no chest bumps to everybody? No, I mean, I mean, but there's a time and place for that. Like, it's not to say that I, I don't get jazzed up and, like, you know, put on some TSO and, like, let's do this. <laughs> um, but, um, but certainly my job as a coach is to, like, kind of tell them what they're going to be doing. Like, hey, no, this is what we're going to be training for. Like, of course, I'm taking their input. Like, I'm looking at their injury history. I'm looking at uh, their ability level, like where they are now. Um, and then, then I'm, I'm obviously formulating a, a program that's going to, you know, be catered to them. But, you know, my job as a coach, I mean, there's times where I just hand the dumbbells to a, a female or a client and say, you're lifting this. And they'll be like, oh, my God, are you, are you crazy? And then, and then they do it. You know, and then they're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. I'm like, exactly. Like, you know, 15-pound dumbbells aren't, aren't doing shit. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll hand the 30-pound dumbbells to them. Like, here we go. Like, now, now we're actually doing some work. So, um, so a lot of times my job as a coach is to help them realize that they can do stuff. Um, you know, but, but I, but that is the goal of me. Uh, uh, that is my job as well as making sure that I'm implementing the correct variations that, that are going to show them success. Like I'm not, I, I try my very best not to make it that they're, they're missing reps or they, they're, are, are using stuff that's too progressive, uh, where they can't do it. Like my job, I, I want, I want to build success right from the, right from the get go. And, um, that, that we're just taking that momentum from month to month to month. Now, for those who don't know how to deadlift, how would you progress somebody from, like, they've never done it before to yeah. going off the floor safely? Well, a lot of times is, is educating them because a lot of times when you say deadlift, uh, and, and, again, not to throw women under the boat here, but under the bus here, but a lot of times when I say deadlift to women, they're like, oh, no, I don't, I'm not. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> um, they, they, they look at, like, a, a barbell, and they, look, they see it with a lot of weight on there, and they, and they, and they say, oh, that's what I'm going to be doing? Are you crazy? Um, so a lot of times is educating them, like, you know, really what we're, what we're saying is, is a hip hinge. So that, that is a deadlift. So from square one, it might just be program or like grooving an appropriate hip hinge, like teaching them to dissociate lumbar movement 
from hip movement and making sure they're getting the motion from their hips and not their lumbar spine. Make sure that they are keeping a good torso angle and they're keeping a neutral spine. Um, and that could, there and there's any number of drills we can do here. We can do the you know the wall hip hinge. You know I can have them hold a kettlebell behind themselves and hip hinge that way out of reach. I mean there's there are any number of you know pull throughs. That, I mean I've I've written a numerous blogs on this where it's just like remedial hip hinge patterning where we're just grooving that hip hinge and then we can graduate to where we add load and you know a buddy of mine ben bruno who who's a trainer out in, in uh the west coast over in hollywood like he trains a lot of females out there um and a lot of celebrities at that and i remember when he first moved out there he was in boston he moved out to hollywood and we were having a conversation he's like yeah it's really different out here like you know on the east coast and in boston especially when he's working at mike boyle's place it's like you know it's performance it's like let's get strong let's get fast let's jump higher you know working with athletes is one element but then when he went out west it was like people were more in the aesthetics and not really concerned about getting strong they just want to look good um and he had this phenomenon where he started talking about deadlifts with some of his female clients in a barbell and they're like nope not doing it but then the funny thing happened was he would then say okay well let's do a kettlebell deadlift or let's do a landmine deadlift um and loading it fairly heavy and then like they're without blinking either like, yeah let's awesome let's do that it was just something weird about <laughs> the way they were interpreting like a barbell deadlift you know and then a kettlebell deadlift was less intimidating and even though he was loading it pretty heavy um you know with, with a kettlebell or with a landmine um, they were they were crushing those, but then they they would be they would be against doing like a what we would consider a traditional like conventional deadlift with a barbell. So um, even something like that. So maybe yes, we, our starting point for a lot of people with their deadlift is with a kettlebell. You know, making sure that they're learning how to you know get that upper body tension, like squeezing the oranges in their armpits to get those lats firing, keeping a good torso angle, um, finishing with the glutes at the top, um, and hinging back down to the floor. Um, you know, and then if they do well with that, usually my starting point is a trap bar. I, I, I'm a really big fan of uh, the trap bar deadlift. You know, even when I was at Cresty Sports Performance. I can't tell you how many pro baseball players would walk in. We'd start them with a trap bar. It's just a more user-friendly way of grooving a hip hinge and, 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 and implementing uh, uh, the deadlift into, into someone's program. And then from there, we can progress it to a sumo stance or a conventional stance. Because really, when we talk about the deadlift, the, the conventional deadlift, the one that we say is the deadlift, is, is, can arguably be saved that that's the most advanced variation mm -hmm. of a deadlift as far as like where the bar is where the center of mass is like center of rotation like the bar you know the, the bar out in front of you you're for the, the the center of rotation is further away and the, that can be problematic for people's backs so if we start with a trap bar deadlift where they're actually inside the bar um and it's just, it's just like i said it's just a more user-friendly less intimidating way of introducing the deadlift um, you know, start there, build some confidence, and then we can. Then maybe we can revert to a barbell. Because and and I'm not even married to that. Because unless someone's a power lifter or they're an Olympic lifter, they don't have to be using a straight bar and they don't have to be pulling from the floor. Yeah, I so, really, I really like the trap bar too. Because like when sometimes you get people to the straight bar and they're like flat back. Nope, that's yeah. still rounded. Flatter than that. Yeah. It's yep. worse now. <laughs> yep. So I so even I mean there's 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 clients I have now where they they're they're never going to do a straight bar deadlift. It's just not worth it. So we can get all the all the benefits we need from using a trap bar. Um, we can load that and we can we can still get all the benefits of a deadlift. 
and um, and good things happen. So, um, you know, I'm not one of those coaches that's like, you know, everyone has to do this, everyone has to do that, it's only this way. Because there's even different ways with each individual that foot stance, width, you know, where the hips are, like everyone is different. So, um, you know, I, it's my job to ascertain that and to figure that out. But, um, but yeah, like I, I'm, trap bar is, is my starting point for pretty much everyone. I really like Ben Bruno's posts, like especially the landmine deadlift. And he made a comment how, you know, the end of the barbell is actually smooth so the women won't get the giant cows. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, I did not think about that. I mean, and really, I mean, you're, that, that is, that's the way to trick them, yeah. right? Like they, they're deadlifting. They're doing a deadlift. They're just, they're just not doing the, the, the variation that they've seen in Muscle and Fitness magazine with a big meathead guy, you know, yelling really loud and straining really loud. Like they're doing a deadlift right? and they're absolutely crushing their posterior chain, which is what they want. Like hamstrings, glutes, like who, what woman doesn't want a nice posterior chain? What guy doesn't want a nice posterior chain? Right. So, um, it's little stuff like that where run with it. Like, I mean that <laughs> you can lower the landmine deadlift pretty heavy. Oh, yeah. So, so I mean, they like I said, no, not everyone has to be doing conventional sumo style deadlifts. Now, if you had to create like a fat loss specific program, like what exercises would you choose? How would you structure it yeah. and uh, go from there? Yeah, um, you know, I, I mean, just to go a little bit off, not off topic, but off tangent. Like one article that I really love on this topic is uh, Alan Cosgrove's Fat Loss Hierarchy. Yeah. Um, that to me is like, that's it. Like if you want to talk about anyone who's like the godfather of fat loss programming, um, it'd be guys like Alan Cosgrove, Craig Ballantyne, um, excuse me. Um, so that, that's a fantastic article. Cause I mean, what does he always say? What, it, what is the number one and number two rule of fat loss programming? It's nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you mean, I, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's a very cliche thing to say, but you, you, of course you're not going to out train a, a shitty diet. So, you know, finding, um, a, you know, a nutrition plan that works for you, um, that you're going to stick to, um, is, is one that's going to work. And of course you, we, we have to have a caloric deficit to, in order to lose fat. Um, you know, and you know, that, that, and another thing too, that, that, that people have a hard time understanding is that if you are, if you are in a fat loss phase or that your goal is to lose fat like you're going to feel hungry at times like you're going to be hungry like and you have to accept that <laughs> yeah so um you know and that's a hard thing for a lot of people to understand is that there is a degree of hunger that is involved with that um so again yeah the, the nutrition component can't be overstated like you have to so, some way or another in, implement some kind of caloric deficit um and then and then and nutrition is going to be the easiest way to do that you know because a lot of times what I'll, how i'll equate it to some people is like let's say we're trying to look for a, a 500 just to make it simple a 500 calorie deficit you know how long is it going to take you to burn 500 calories in the weight room, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's doing the cardio or whatever, it's going to take them a while, like 45 minutes, an hour, depending on how hard they're working and what modality they're using. And then I was like, now take that and, and now equate this to nutrition where it's like, now, how are we going to, how are we going to implement a 500 calorie deficit? It would be like, literally, you're not going to have that bowl of cereal before you go to bed. 
Yeah. There, there's your caloric deficit. And then it's like, oh, wow, really? That's there. There you go. Like it's that it's that important. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, concern. So from a fat loss standpoint, I do feel like the 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 big rock component is nutrition but that's not to say that we can't expedite the process with our programming so and to me like i feel i'm i'm a strength guy like i I like getting people strong and even with someone who's doing a fat loss program i still feel like there's a role of strength training in there because i feel like one of the biggest mistakes that people make with the fat loss program is it's very high rep it's very high volume and that can spell disaster when we're when we're implementing that when we're instituting that with a caloric deficit like you're going to feel like ass like you're you're already at the caloric deficit and now you're saying like okay now we're going to now we're going to increase volume and we're going to increase our reps to, to augment that like to me that's that's a recipe for feeling like 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 dog ass shit all the time um so i would say and we need we need to give the body the stimulus to maintain and keep muscle because especially if you're in a caloric deficit and then you're now you're adding in high volume high frequency it's like you're gonna you're, the likelihood that you're gonna be breaking down a lot of, i mean don't get me wrong you're gonna lose some degree of some percentage of muscle in a fat loss diet like you're not gonna lose 100 fat it's impossible but um the, the, to me when it comes to a fat loss program one of the keys is try to maintain as much muscle mass as possible and one of the easiest ways to do that is to still include some element of strength training in there whether it's like you know once a week working up to a heavy triple on a squat or a deadlift or a bench press you know it's just it's just reminding the body reminding the nervous system like to keep this muscle right with lower rep training higher with low rep high weight and then of course we can then we then we can add in our our, our super seven circuits and our finishers and stuff like that so um to me um there's not a a, a huge gap between a strain training routine and a fat loss routine. Like, yes, there, there, there might be some modalities where I'm, I'm, I'm including more supersets and finishers at the end, but um, to me, the real change is gonna be in the nutrition. You know, but you know, but with with fat loss programming, I still feel like a lot of people miss the mark and not still including some element of strength training in there, where they're where they're working up to some heavy triples, maybe a heavy single, just to, just to remind the body to maintain this muscle mass that you have, and then and then and then of course using your you know whether it's a 10 minute finisher or you know just doing some metabolic work at the end I, of course that's going to be part of the, the the process as well to help expedite things but um that that's kind of like my um addition or insight into fat loss programs i still feel like there's a there is a strength component and i've seen on numerous times where people who are training for a show or training for a competition or training for a photo shoot they're able to if not maintain their strength levels improve upon them because they are still including that 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 um that strength component so it, it definitely is possible yeah, I think a lot of people also, like, fall victim to, like, if they're on a fat loss program, they feel like they need to, like, be dead by the end of the hour. Yeah, and, I mean, and there, of course, there's a time and place for that. You know, that's not to say that um, that isn't part of the process, but to me, I'd rather than feel refreshed and, like, wanting more 
Um, and then I, I think that just comes with proper periodization, whether, you know, whether, you know, we can go into, that, that's a whole nother conversation as far as like block training or undulated or, you know, whatever conjugate, concurrent. I mean, there's, there's a whole different thoughts processes there, but, um, I definitely run under the mindset. Like I'd rather my clients feel like at the end of a session that, you know, yeah, I worked. Like they could tell they worked, and it wasn't fun. But they're not—they're not like you know collapsing to the ground every single session. I mean, every now and then, sure, I'll be like, "Fuck it, we're gonna—I'm gonna destroy you today." Um, but uh, that's not—that is definitely not my goal. Session in and session out. Like I sometimes just matter getting some quality reps in, um, just reminding the body, reminding the nervous system, reminding reminding the body to keep that muscle, and then the the the. Nutrition component's going to take care of, of the fat loss. I like uh, just dressing up like the fat loss programs for people with like the little finisher at the end. Yeah, they, exactly. Like, they're like, oh, okay, I worked, but it wasn't like I'm dying or anything. Yeah, you kind of trick them. So like in the beginning, like you know, I like to start every session with the main movement of the day, like the main like big rock of the day. So I don't really look at like today. Today's deadlift day. So they're going to work up to a heavy triple on whatever deadlift variation we're using. And then the, 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 the subsequent exercises basically complement the deadlift depending on where their technique kind of falters or where the weak points are. Um, that, I'm, I'm addressing that. Because to me, like, I feel like your accessory movements need to have a rationale. And if it's squat day, deadlift day, bench bray, whatever, um, my objective for those accessory movements are going to be to address a technique flaw, um, address uh, a weak range of motion, um, and that's that's what those are for. And then at the end, at you know whether it's ten minutes, fifteen minutes, then it's like okay, now I'm now I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. you know, so we'll do a carry finisher paired with goblet squats and or battle ropes, or we'll do, we'll get on the airdyne bike and do intervals on there. So they're getting that metabolic. They're getting their heart rate off. They're getting that metabolic component, um, and they feel like they they did some some hard work at the end. And really, that's kind of like the difference between you know a strength training program and like one that's more for aesthetic base or fat loss. It's just like you know doing a superset at the end or a little quick finisher at the end. Um, like I said, for me personally, there's not like a, a a major like huge gap between how I'm programming between the two roles. So there are there are more similarities than there are differences with with that yeah i think it's also just like specific exercises like for me i love the sled for a finisher and absolutely like if you load that thing and you just go out and back you're like holy crap <laughs> yeah and, and and you and you can prove a point to people because a lot i mean again that's another conversation where people think that you know the only way to get a cardiovascular benefit is being on a treadmill being on the elliptical being on the step mill which is fine like i'm not i'm not against that but you know, you had them push a sled, a heavy sled for, you know, 40 yards and say, Hey, is your heart rate up? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> like, yeah. like you're getting, you're getting some cardio component there. Um, well, you're getting your heart rate up. I'm going to say it's cardio because cardio is more of a sustained heart rate, but, um, they're, they're getting a metabolic component there. Now, how much do you think stress and sleep play a factor in fat loss? I think it's huge. I think yeah. sleep, like to me, like, I think before people start talking about supplements and, you know, fat burners and anything like that, um, 
I always say, well, let's talk about your nutrition. Let's break that down. Like, what are you eating for lunch? What are, what, what are you are you bringing meals with you to work? Like, I mean, I, I can work with them with that. Like, I feel comfortable doing that stuff. Um, but if they want something a little bit more detailed or, or they have a, a dietary issue, whether it's a, some kind of intolerance, whether it's gluten or they're allergic to something, whatever, then, of course, I'm saying, hey, go go to go to the registered dietitian. Um, but... Um, but sleep, sleep is huge. Like it's so underrated. People don't. People just like we take it for granted that you know. Yeah, if you're if you're averaging, if you're only getting four to five hours of sleep a night, like you're 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 not doing yourself any 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 good service there. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've I've worked with pro athletes and they they feel like ass or if the fatless clients like, hey, what time do you go to bed at night? And they're like, oh, one o'clock, one thirty. <laughs> And I'm like, go to fucking bed. Yeah. Like, like you're, that's your recovery time. That's 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 the time that your body. That's the time when your body's recovering and growing. Like you're actually breaking down tissue when you're training. Like you're not building anything when you're training. You're breaking it down, right? So where you're actually growing and recovering and building is when you're going to bed. So um, I mean, and I'm not I'm not forcing people to say hey, you got to get 10 hours of sleep or you know but I, I honestly like minimum seven like i feel like most people if you're not getting at least six seven hours of sleep maybe eight if you're lucky without kids um i think that it, yeah sleep is huge and i think you know whether it was eric or, or or whoever else was saying like the the your quality of sleep before midnight as far as the hours you're getting are so, like you could be getting six hours of sleep but if you're going to bed at 10 p.m. and then waking up at 6, say, say that's 8 hours, that's better than if you went to bed at, at 1 o'clock and got up at 9. Yeah. Like, as far as the quality of sleep. Like, I mean, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't, I can't remember the article or any research that backs that up. But there's something to be said about the quality of your hours of sleep before midnight and then after as far as circadian rhythms and hormone levels and, and anything of that nature. So, um yeah, I'm a big fan of sleep, to long story short. <laughs> and telling people to go to bed. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, you wrote a blog about getting a f- food allergy test or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what yeah, was your experience with that, and how long have you been off chicken, and how is it going? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, so I was, so just to clarify, it was a, it was a food intolerance test. Okay. It, wasn't, it wasn't a food allergy test. Okay. And it, was, it was the pinner test. So... I was introduced to the Pinner test um, back in December. My wife took it, so I, off the off the recommendation uh, of, a, of, a, of a good friend of mine who's a coach and he's a he's a precision nutrition guy. Um, you know, he had always had um, digestive issues and gut issues, and um, all through like his teenage years, through his adulthood, and he's always had issues. So. Um, you know, food elimination, he did all that. So he ended up taking the Pinner test, um, come to find out that he had a food intolerance to vanilla, mm-hmm. um, which is a very innocuous, like, what the fuck, vanilla? Yeah. Um, and and, and he, not that he was, like, like putting, he wasn't eating vanilla in his diet, but what he was doing was having vanilla protein powder, um, which is like, holy shit, like that. Okay, so he, he then he took out vanilla protein powder and immediately started feeling better, seeing results. 
Um, you know, and he became a, a big advocate of, of uh, that test um, and advocating a lot of his clients to take it. And, and I understand it's a very controversial um, thing. Like there, there's research that goes against it. There's research that, that justifies it. And I, I like to think of myself as somewhere in the middle. Like I'm, I, I respect evidence-based research and evidence-based practices, but it's hard for me to, to deny a mountain of anecdotal um, experiences as well. And, uh, you know, and I, I've, I've, I've d discussed this with several registered dietitians that I'm, that I respect and not, and strength coaches I respect and, and their clients see, getting good results from it or getting, at least getting good information. Cause at the end of the day, it's, it's just information. Yeah. So it's just information. What you do with it is completely on, uh, up to you. Um, and I, and again, and to reiterate, I understand that like the science is, it's there, but you know, do we really understand it? Like I get it. Um, but so anyways, my wife took it in December, um, found out that she had an intolerance to coffee, egg yolk, green peppers, um, and a few other things. Um, so, and, and her reaction to the coffee was fuck. Like <laughs> yeah. she is a coffee person. <laughs> so that was like the worst thing possible. And with the pinner test, there's, there's levels, there's level one, level two, level three, um, and three being the worst. Um, all of which are there. It is an intolerance, and they always recommend that you know when you take the test that you 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 take three to six months and you 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 omit it and you see what happens and then you slowly introduce it and there. I mean they can they can explain it explain it better than I can. But so my wife had a good experience with it. Like she saw that her skin cleared up, uh, her her gut felt better. She wasn't having as much indigestion. Uh, hopefully, she doesn't mind me telling the world about this. But she had indigestion, but uh, but she, so needless to say, she had a good experience, and she was wanted me to take it. And I was like, ah, whatever, like uh, whatever, like um, I'll take it at some point. Um, so fast forward to I think it was last month. Uh, the people at Pentatest reached out to me and they asked if I would like to take a complimentary test. So I was like, oh yeah, sure, great, and. Um, I was like, well, how about if I'm going to do it, I might as well just write about my experience taking it. And um, so, yeah, I took it and come to find out that I had a level two intolerance to chicken, of all things, which is like, that's like the epitome of like meathead diet. It's chicken yeah. and potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also carrot. Um, and not that I eat a ton of carrots, but I fucking love carrot cake. <laughs> so, so I'm very sad about that. That was like my favorite dessert. Um, and then there were other things. Uh, what other ones came up? It was, uh, um, grapes and, uh, there was another one that I'm blanking at the moment. So, um, so yeah, I'm in week two of omitting chicken from my diet. Um, as well as the other things, and I'm going to see what happens. Like, I'm going to give it three months, and then I'm going to kind of re-acquaint uh, myself with what I originally wrote and, like, what are my experiences with it after three months. And so, and you know, I feel lucky because, you know, I, I can't say that I ever uh, uh, um, have a, a hankering for chicken. So, you know, taking it out isn't the end of the world. Like, it's just a matter of, like, now I'm seeing more pork chops. I'm eating more fish. I can crush red meat, so which makes me very happy. Um, 
you know, so I'm still getting my protein and I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, I, I just omitted chicken, which, you know, doesn't make me too sad, but, um, it's just, it's just, it's just very weird for me to say that. Cause as a meathead, uh, you know, guys lift weights his whole life. Chicken is like the thing yeah. <laughs> it's like, and now I'm not eating it, but, uh, um, but yeah, so far it's, it's been, it's been, we'll see what happens. Like, again, I'm only two weeks in, so I can't say that, uh, I've seen like a huge difference, but, um, I definitely have a, a bout of, um, a dermatitis on my face. So I'm, I'm, and I've battled that for years. You know, I get like these red, uh, blotches and flaky skin on my face, which makes me really attractive. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm trying to see if, you know, omitting these foods that came up as an intolerance with this test, if it, uh, um, if it helps with that. So, um, I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens with that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of like my experience with it. And, you know, I, and I, 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 I feel personally that I've gotten some good information from it. So if at the, if at the end of three months, I, I don't feel it, it did anything, then cool, whatever. But, um, where, where I see this being of value is at least it helps expedite the process. Cause, and cause this isn't to downplay the whole, food diary and straight up elimination diet. Cause that absolutely works. Like, you know, I, I mean, people write about it and they do it and they're very successful with it, but it, it's a long drawn out process at times. So where I feel there's value in taking something like a pinner test or any kind of food intolerance test is that it may help to kind of expedite the process. Um, and I never would have thought about chicken. Like, honestly, like who has, a, who, who would think about chicken? Who would think about carrot? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see after the end of, of three months, like what, how I feel and, you know, whether or not I slowly introduce those foods back into my diet to some smaller degree, but, um, yeah, you know, that, that, that's, that's the, that's kind of like the, the, my experience with, with that. Yeah, I think those tests are good for just getting more information and kind of like almost playing detective with your body. Like, okay, I'm going to take this one thing, see how I feel after, and if it works, it works, and you you're better. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, at the end of the, uh, I mean, at the end of the three months, I mean, it, it's up to, I mean, because it, it's an expensive test, and you know, at the end of the when you take it, if you know, you, you, you get your results and you, you, you do the three month elimination. And at the end of three months, if, if you feel like it, it worked well and it, you know, it like, and great. And if not, then, then, you know, it's, it's, it's up to the person to realize whether or not it was like a, a pain in the ass to do it or, or not, but it, it's just information. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I got some value out of it. I know my wife did, and I know many other coaches that I respect a ton, uh, have had clients who have taken it and, um, you know, gleaned some good information from it and, and, and saw immediate results and, and certain digestive issues or skin issues or bloating. Um, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's, uh, um, it's unknown, it's unknown territory, not unknown. I mean, there, there is some research and science behind it, but you know, I, I know there's, there's, there's kind of up in the airness with it. So, you know, anecdotally, I'm just trying to see what happens. Yeah, like I have two friends in naturopathic school right now, and one of them was telling me that for like kids with eczema, if you actually just take out dairy for a while, it'll actually clear up the skin. Mm -hmm. So it almost seems like it's like dairy and like gluten. Oh man, I was so happy to, know, to see that dairy wasn't on the list for me <laughs> because I love cheese. <laughs> yeah. um, 
So I was very happy about that. And, uh, you know, my wife was like positive that I was going to come back like we and all that stuff was, and I, cause I, I eat bread, like I eat, I eat pretzels, like, um, you know, and, and, uh, and I also eat a lot of chicken. And of course people, we've been so programmed to think that it's gluten, that it's wheat, that it's this, um, you know, and I, I, I necessarily, I'm not, a, I'm not an anti-gluten guy. Like I feel like that's been well overplayed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it, it was it was very funny to it was chicken and carrot and grape and and like and potatoes of all things. I'm like potatoes is another thing. I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, come on. But uh, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. And uh, I I know there are a lot of people out there that, that definitely are fans of it, and I know there are people out there who aren't. Um, and it's not for me to say uh, to tell people that they're they're training their thoughts, but I'm giving it a try. I'm I'm, I'm seeing what happens. So we'll, we'll hopefully. Um, you know, I, it's so far so good on my end. Perfect. Now to finish off and wrap up, can you tell the audience like where they can find you online, what projects you're working on next, yeah. any speaking um, engagements and stuff like that? So home base for me is my own personal website. So it's my name. It's TonyGentleCorder.com. Uh, and that is where I do all of my blogging, link to all my articles, social media is on there. So that, that's a pretty easy find right there. Um, as far as uh, any projects coming out, like Dean Somerset and I um, have done a, a, what we call the complete shoulder and hip blueprint. Um, we've done the... 10 times, but we filmed it when, when we were over in Europe this past spring. And that's going to be re- released as a digital product in uh, hopefully within the next couple weeks. Nice. Uh, and we feel that that's going to be a very um, a valuable resource for personal trainers and coaches and even fitness enthusiasts that, you know, I basically take a day and talk about shoulders. I talk about shoulder assessment, shoulder corrective exercise, like what, what, what it means to help improve upward rotation and what's the difference between external impingement, internal impingement, programming strategies around that. Um, and Dean takes a whole day and talks about the hip and, um, deadlift technique, squat technique, how you can kind of, you know, cater each, each lift to fit the, the anatomy of each individual that you assess. And um, so that's going to be coming out. And um, he and I are going to be speaking, actually doing our last live event in uh, Minneapolis this October. So we're doing a complete shoulder and hip workshop at Movement Minneapolis in uh, the weekend of October 15th. And then, um, yeah, and then leading into next year, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I, I have a baby on the way. <laughs> so Congrats, congrats. Thank you. I don't, I don't know how much that's going to affect my, um, my ability to travel. Um, but certainly it, it feels good to be in demand. Like, you know, this past year was amazing as far as like, I, I was, I spoke in Europe twice, you know, I spoke all around the country. So it feels pretty cool that people want to listen to me talk about what it, what it is that I talk about, whether it's, you know, talking about deadlifts for four hours or talking about assessment and program design. So I feel very fortunate that people want to listen to me and that they feel that I have good information that I put out there. So, um, yeah, that that's hopefully that continues. So if anyone listening wants wants me to travel and speak, like please feel free to reach out. Perfect. All right. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat, and it was yeah, awesome. Yeah. No, this is awesome. I think you're doing the what is this number like? What twelve, thirteen, something somewhere around there. So. Uh yeah, um, around there. Yeah, like, I've been listening to him. You're doing an awesome job. I love it. Oh, thanks. I got a fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got one person listening to you. No, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so next up, 
is Josh Henkin. He's known as the sandbag guy. When it comes to learning anything to do with the sandbag and finding the missing links in your program, this is the guy to follow. The cool thing is that he actually went through a pretty intense surgery on his low back and basically rehabbed himself because the surgeons told him that most likely he's not gonna be able to function the way he did. And now he travels around the world presenting on the topic of the sandbag and rehab and a host of other things. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut This Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and we have another badass guest for you guys. His name is Josh Henkin. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? So to start us off, if you can just tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the industry? Sure, I'm probably best known for our DVRT system, and that stands for Dynamic Variable Resistance Training, and that's our system of uh, functional training that we use predominantly with our Ultimate Sandbag, but we use with other uh, functional tools as well, and uh, I've been doing that for the past almost 12 years now. Um, Before that, you know, I was an athlete. Basketball uh, was my sport. I was a consistently injured athlete, which gave me my motivation and inspiration into uh, strength conditioning and uh, shaped a lot about what our system is about today. Um, from there, I you know, worked in a, you know, strength conditioning in the university level, owned my own gym for about 10 years, and now I travel almost exclusively teaching our program at conferences and uh, training facilities all over the world. That's awesome. What sport did you play back in college, sorry? Basketball. Basketball. Yeah. And what was your injury? Well, when I was 14, I herniated L4, L5 after getting shoved in the back. So Jeez. for more of my life, I've had to deal with injuries than not. So, that, you know, in retrospect, it's given me a great gift in being able to, you know, work with people at a higher level and be more empathetic and sort of create better programs because definitely wasn't a case where I was a naturally gifted athlete and everything came easy. So, you know, being able to help people going through the same sort of challenges has really allowed us to, I think, give a, a much better process to, you know, fitness and strength conditioning. Oh, definitely. At 14, that, that's so early to get, like, a low-pack injury, eh? Yeah, I'm a, head, I'm a early starter of things. I'm very motivated. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially nowadays, because, like, everybody has some sort of, like, low-back issue. And mm-hmm. it's kind of, like, I kind of look at it as, like, it's almost a blessing in disguise, because now if you have a client that has low-back inju- uh, low injury, you could be like, oh, I went through the same thing and kind of almost know what they're going through? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think clients, for the most part, look at us as, like, superhumans. You know, we're the yeah. crazy people that like being sore. We like to torture ourselves. We want to make the sweat angels. And, you know, our clients are like, oh, my God, I just I just want to make it to the gym today and maybe work out a little bit. Um, so, you know, having us come back to reality where they hear, you know, that we're very much like them and we've gone through maybe challenges even greater than they have, like, uh, you know, I've had two spinal fusions over my lifetime and, you know, one was necessary after, you know, losing my right leg. And so I can relate to people very much so they don't look at me like I'm going to try just to kill them or beat them up, that I'm going to take a more intelligent approach to them and I'm actually going to listen to what they need and want and not just sort of give them what I feel is appropriate. So it makes you much more, I think, a better teacher and coach because part of that, you know, a large part of coaching is just directing and leading people in a positive direction. Oh, Definitely. Uh, for your spinal fusion, what was your like rehab process for that? Um, you know, I'm very fortunate. So I'm married to a physical therapist, but she turned me around and she's like, well, you know what to do. Um, 
you know, since I had been, it was a 25-year-old disc injury, so it was the disc that finally just failed from when I was 14, and basically started compressing upon my spinal cord, so when they did the uh, fusion, basically they went through the front side, which is, well, you know, it sounds gnarly, and it's actually better than going through the back, but from a recovery standpoint, it's like, someone is basically having like a C-section, so, you know, any female listeners can understand, uh, I am now a lot more empathetic to the ladies out there that go through such a thing. Uh, when you start cutting out, open the abdominal wall, you know, not only are you changing, you know, the spine, but you're going to change the musculature, the fascia. Um, so I had to start from a point of like ground zero where I, I had neuropathy in my right leg and I had a diagnosis of two years before I'd be able to really use my right leg again. And within six months, I was back to doing single leg based training. So, but that had to go through a system and that, you know, really for us is the testament to what we do of, you know, having a process and a methodology behind how we approach training and basically I just followed our approach and our methodology and that goes from understanding principles to, you know, you know, progression, uh, you know, from starting from the ground and learning how, you know, what is core activation really mean? How does tension and stability relate to one another? How does nervous system coordination go into repattering movement? And, you know, when I go back to my neurologist, he goes, what the hell are you doing? Um, because like, you're not supposed to be recovering this fast. It's nothing he could really understand, but it's based upon a system and a plan. And so, you know, where I was at going to a therapist for a little bit just to get some manual therapy stuff done for the scar tissue, like it took them two to three weeks to give me like an initial exercise. And I was already exercising, you know, I had clearance pretty early on. So I was exercising before the therapists were ready. And all I was doing was doing more coordination activation type stuff, just trying to wake up my body after the trauma. And I think, you know, having gone through that process gives me a different outlook on things because what people think isn't possible or what they prioritize in their training and for their goals is very different to how we sort of look at and communicate to people what they should be really trying to accomplish when they sort of express what they want to achieve with their results. Oh, yeah. It's such a mental game, too, because when someone gets injured, they're like, oh, great, everything's over. Whereas if you kind of go into it a positive like mindset, it's like, okay, this is what I need to do and this is what I need to accomplish in the next six weeks. I might be back to normal faster than an average person. Yeah, I mean, I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is a couple of things with, with injury, especially the, depending how severe the injury is. One, anyone who's been in chronic pain, uh, their biggest fear is going back into pain. Mm -hmm. So I think as coaches, sometimes we want to push people and we want to get them, and we haven't earned their trust yet, that they're a little bit fearful that you know we're going to put them back in that state. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of people, even I, I would say probably us included, you know, a great example, a coach said, one, a colleague of mine said, because if your mom said they just hired a personal trainer, would you be psyched or would you be skeptical? <laughs> and I think that says volumes about our industry. I mean, yeah. I don't know about you. I'd be kind of skeptical, you know, uh, what are they going to do? And, and so I think for a lot of people, there's a little mistrust in the industry that we're just going to beat them up. And so when you're coming off an injury or you've had a chronic injury, your fear is being back in the pain. Uh, so I think the first thing that coaches got to do is earn clients trust and put them in position to succeed and show them that they're going to not go ahead and put them back in that state, which is tough because at the same time, pain is such a complicated issue. And, you know, what's pain for one person is discomfort for another. And so being, helping people distinguish pain from discomfort can be a big challenge too, because, you know, you, you may have very modest and, and things that set someone off just neurologically or just it didn't sit right with their body. And then you have to go back to the drawing board. I know I went through that process myself where it was something very mundane would just set me off 
Uh, my body just wasn't ready for it, so I just had to take note of it. So as much as we come in with a plan, I think you have to be flexible in that plan, and that's where I think like having a system and a process is a lot more helpful because if you don't have a system in place when something doesn't work out, then you don't know how to properly adjust it for that individual, and you start just sort of randomly grabbing for things rather than having a, a, a approach that makes more sense, and you can look at why that person isn't ready and where do you start them from and how are we going to progress them. So it's I, I give it more, more so of like, like if you went to a doctor with a really good bedside manner and a philosophy, they're going to have a plan for your health approach. They're not going to just give you a medication. They're going to look at a more global aspect of the of what you're doing. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting when clients would rather go to a doctor if they injured something rather than a physiotherapist because then the doctor will just say, well, don't use your shoulder for six to eight weeks and it'll get better. And then you, one, take off time off the gym and you're probably going to build some bad habits of not exercising at all because, you know, yeah, you have a bad shoulder, but what's wrong with the rest of your body? There's still stuff that you can do along with the rehab stuff that you need. Sure. I mean, I, I you know, I think it's just a, I mean, it's, it's like anything else. You know, as much as I think, you know, coaches, we give people, you know, the general public a hard time about some of their decision making. You know, if, if we put ourselves in a position, let's say, find out the best accountant, you know, or lawyer, I, I don't know. I, 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 do what probably a lot of you know, clients do, which is they look for the people with the most education. I, I want to find someone with that Harvard degree. And, yeah. um, and, and so I think it's just, unfortunately, we have such a young industry. And it, it hasn't been a profession for very long. So the attributes to look for in a professional are not very well laid out. You know, I did a presentation for the NSCA uh, last year, and, and I, I talked about how the American beauticians uh, society was formed in like 1936 mm-hmm. and the NSA was formed in 1979. And so if you think of it from a longevity of a profession, that's a very short time. Yeah. And, you know, beauticians associations have been around longer than, you know, personal training and, and strength conditioning. So I think it's a little bit of the headaches of growth and development and, you know, our, it's also an industry without much regulation. So I could understand why, you know, someone that gets hesitant, I would think a doctor would be more qualified than a personal trainer. But, you know, I, I understand also it comes down to education of that person. And also it comes down to us making connections and networks with other health professionals so we can have an open line of communication and gain that respect and have them understand, you know, what it is that we can bring to the table to help their patients and their clients. That's a tough thing with our industries. You don't really see a lot of coaches that are, say, 35 or older. You see a lot of younger guys and girls that are like early 20s but they're so hungry for information and they want to get better but then you know if a client's in their 50s they're going to be kind of hesitant to hire somebody that's 21 but who knows they might be like the next best thing right well sure you know but the example i always give to people is i mean when i had my training facility most of my clients were probably women uh that were over 35 and you know, contrary to what probably some people would tell you, I'm not a woman over 35, so I'm hard to relate yeah. uh, to those clients. Um, but what is, I built a level of trust with them and respect because, you know, there was things I did to make sure that they knew I was hearing what they were saying and that I was relating things and communicating to them in terms that were important to them. So I always made sure that even though I was not their model of what they wanted to accomplish, that their voice was being heard and their needs were being met and that we were having that nice blend of 
me being the expert and giving them what they need, but also being willing to hear about what they want and making sure that was part of the process. Because I think only any good fitness program is only as good as if people are involved in the process. So if you're talking at people, if you're just looking stuff at people and they're not part of the process, then I never think you're going to get the buy-in that they ultimately really want to have. Yeah. I find like uh, with women clients, they're a little bit more open to ideas, at least most of them. I can't say for all of them. Whereas I think guys are a little bit more picky where they kind of want to know a little bit more about the science. They kind of want to know why we're doing this. Is this actually going to get me to my goal? It was kind of interesting dynamic when you're coaching two different populations like that. Yeah, I mean, I think guys in general, well, I think guy on guy trainer is always an interesting battle too because there's always that little male ego yeah. challenge there so like two gorillas meeting in the jungle or something <laughs> um you know who can pound their chest a little bit harder and you know I, and i agree i think you know when you know some some coaches don't like it when clients challenge them and i just i actually get excited when the client asks me a question because that means they're engaged in the process and, and even if i don't have the answer that's okay i think you know people can respect the fact that you're like hey i don't know that's a great question let me find out more about you because you just can't seemingly be an expert about everything physiologically. I mean, doctors aren't, physios aren't. Um, but I think being honest with people and giving them the idea that you're going to be informed the best of your ability is, is a great start. And, you know, also just being able to communicate at their level. I've heard coaches vomit information, as I call it, you know, on a client. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like their client didn't get any more information out of that conversation than if they just read it in a textbook, which they'd have no clue about. And usually what I try to do is when someone asks me a question, I try to sit back and go, what's the real question? Because, you know, I'm sure you've been through it. Like, someone asks you a question, what they're asking you is not actually their question. You know, um, I'll I'll give you an example. So I had a client for a long time. He was a very successful businessman in his 50s. And he's like, you know, one day he just goes, Josh, you know, how how come we don't train, like, on the bench a lot? And how come we just don't do a lot of the stuff, you know, that you normally see at the gym? And, you know, he wasn't wanting a physiological dissertation upon functional training, he just wanted to know what he was doing was good and right because it was different. And sometimes when you're doing something so different than everybody else, it does make you scratch your head and go, why am I the only one doing this? Uh, and so I just simply explained to him, I said, Brad, I said, if I could make you a million dollars in a month or a million dollars in two years, which one would you prefer? He was like, well, a million dollars in a month for sure. I said, that's basically what this process is doing for you. We're getting you results in a much faster way. And just with that simple analogy, he's like, cool. You know, he was yeah. like, he bought in because I want, he didn't really want to know about sacromeres and, you know, the ATP systems or anything like that. He wanted to know that even though he was doing something different, was it actually better or was it just different? And so I think trying to put ourselves in our client's position and trying to understand the questions they're really asking are very important for us to effectively communicate and then getting them buy-in into the training process. And that's why you, when you see, like, if you go to a big box gym, like, the guys who train there, they'll just do what they know, and it's usually a warm-up set of bench, and then they'll try to slap on plates as much as they can, and then maybe some bicep curls after. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I think of this industry, too, because it is young and we don't have, you know, standard qualifications that we look for, it's a it's an industry that defaults off into aesthetics. So the, the buffest guy, the best-looking woman, tend to be the experts in the gym because – most people aren't educated enough to know what makes for a good trainer, what makes for a good coach, what should I be looking for, what should I be asking them. 
Um, and so I think that's probably, probably part of that growth development process of the industry is like until we have these standards where we like, yeah, that's what makes up a pretty good coach. Then people are, I think, always going to be left to, you know, trying to figure out who looks the best in the gym and asking them the questions, right? I think we all did that when we were younger and, you know, we were trying to find out who to follow and who to lead and who to belong to. So, you know, it's one of those things I don't blame, you know, a lot of the people as much as I do, just the, the growing pains that are, I think our industry is going to go through for the next probably 20 to 30 years before we have industries that really have those outlines of qualifications. Yeah, it's tough because I remember when I first started training, I was at a big box gym where, like, bodybuilding was the thing. And my coworkers were, like, the stereotypical big beefy dudes that are probably on something illegal. And then people would just come up to them, like, I want to look like you train me right and then i'm like a small little like i'm a i'm 155 like soaking Mm -hmm. wet and i was like known as like the functional guy because i started reading about gray cook and uh mike boyle at the time and people were like oh that's kind of cool but i'd rather go to this guy because he's buff (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i i think it's you know one thing you have to be okay too with is you're not going to be for everyone yeah um and it's a tough thing because like you said i mean it's a tough industry to start with it's tough business so, you know, the idea of turning away people and having people not come to you because of these reasons often leaves a lot of us scratching our heads and we want to, like, justify it and we want to, like, rationalize it. And unfortunately, you're just going to have certain people that just aren't going to be right for the style that you want to do. It's like trying it's like trying to force someone who wants Chinese food to go to an Italian restaurant. Yeah. You know, it's like it doesn't mean the Italian restaurant's not good, but that person just didn't want Italian food. Um, so, you know, it, it's also being – I think it's also a better thing for the coach, too, because if you start trying to – do things for people that you don't really want to train that style, then you become unhappy in the process too. And that starts to be reflected in how you deal with a client, how you enjoy the, the job as well. So, I mean, it's a tough thing. It's a, I think the thing comes with maturity and confidence of just being like, you know, okay, yeah, yeah I'm not right for you. You want to be the dude with 21 inch arms, go for it. And if I can help you anyway, if you have a problem later on, that I can help you with and I'm going to be here for you and, you know, and, and just being okay with what it is that you're about. And I think um, that's one of the things that took us a long time was just being okay when people try to challenge us one form or another, just being like, hey, this is what we're about and we may not be for you and that's okay. Um, but hopefully in the future when your priorities change or something else changes in your training, we may become the thing for you. Yeah, definitely. So moving to the next question. So, you kind of made the sandbag almost like mainstream. So can you kind of talk about why you chose the sandbag as like a training tool compared to something else? Sure. You know, I had uh, been in the university settings for quite some time. So like strength conditioning was not like an unfamiliar thing uh, for me. So, you know, the difference I like to give people between strength conditioning and fitness is like athletes have to do what you say. And the priorities are different in strength conditioning than it is in fitness as far as the qualities you're trying to develop and the time that you have available and so forth. So it really is. A, it's, it's a similar concept, but a different field. Um, but the most important part was that, you know, we were focused upon trying to make people be- perform better. And, uh, you know, it's funny when I look back, we weren't doing a very good job because a lot of strength conditioning and a lot of fitness for that matter is based upon just what's been kind of recent, you know? So really again, like 1920s, thirties, I mean, the barbell is less than a hundred years old. Um, so like powerlifting, Olympic lifting are kind of relatively new sports, mm-hmm. uh, in the grand scheme of things, lifting the way we think of lifting is a rather new thing. Um, bodybuilding wasn't a big thing until probably like the forties and fifties. And even then it was pretty different than what we know of it today. 
Um, so and the point of that is like, you know, trying to understand the science of training and my degree is in exercise science. So, you know, I have a formal education and, you know, the, the fun physiology of it, but the actual application of training was something that like we didn't get taught a lot. So, you know, watching a lot of athletes develop, you know, train, we did a lot of the classic powerlifting, we'd clean, we'd squat, you know, we pull ups and bench press and that seemed fine. And, you know, the, the part that changed for me was I was trying to make myself better at the same time. So I was actually retired from athletics because of my back injury. Um, I lost a lot using my right leg, and so I couldn't obviously play basketball, but I was still in a lot of pain. So I was trying to do what I knew, which was from the strength and conditioning side. And what I quickly realized was that wasn't the right thing for me to be doing. So I got into a lot of corrective exercise programs in the late 90s. Uh, people like Paul Check uh, at the time were very innovative people. And that was before, like, before corrective exercise was a big thing. It was because it was basically either fitness or rehab, you know, or mm -hmm. fitness and strength conditioning. And so I tried a lot of the stuff, and the stuff made sense and so forth, but it just didn't make me better. And it wasn't until about 2002 that a, a friend of mine's like, hey, you got to check out this kettlebell thing going on. And I did, like, the all online search. Yes, there was online back then. Uh, <laughs> and I, I looked at it, and I was like, I don't know, man. Like, this kind of looks like what you could do with a dumbbell. He's like, trust me, just go this thing and just, just see what it's about. And so in 2003, I went to the RKC and I met Pavel Zatsuin, who's made, you know, kettlebells popular again in the Western, I would say probably all over the world. But, you know, I got, I was kind of a skeptic going into it. And then I was kind of enamored with something he said right off at the very beginning, which was that he was teaching a system of movement. And the way they were teaching their system of movement was expressed through the kettlebell. And I just never he heard anyone talk about movement really before. It was much more about lifts and exercises and, you know, training qualities and, you know, numbers. Uh, this idea of movement was a very abstract thing. So I, I, it was one of the first times I really got something really unique out of a program. And so I asked Pavel, I'm like, okay, what, what, how do you learn more about this? How, how do I find out what this is? Because this isn't what we're learning in school. And he said, read the old stuff. And he was talking about the stuff in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And thanks to the internet, you can actually find a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I try to do is find correlations, like what was there in consistent habits and patterns? And one of the things I found was, you know, this use of odd objects, uh, because they're all doing kind of different things, all these old time strongmen. And the reason that we want to emulate that, or I want to emulate that was because they had the movement skills of a gymnast, but the strength of a power lifter, which isn't something you would see most times nowadays. You'd either see one or the other. And so they, they use these odd objects in one form or another because even though they didn't have the science, they understood things like core strength, stabilization. Uh, they understood, like, they would say a lot of times, like, filling in the holes. So they understood, like, that the traditional lifts as we think of them were kind of limiting in the, what we were developing all around movement, so there needed to be more. And so, of course, being a former athlete, when you say something's the hardest, I wanted to go do it. So when sort of like consistently it was mentioned that a, a sandbag or a bag of some type was used and it was like the most challenging because it was so unstable, I wanted to go try it. So I did the whole army duffel bag, garbage bag thing with duct tape and I you know, went in my garage with about 80 pounds and got my ass handed to me. And, um, you know, not, and being someone who's like lifted for a long time, I was like, what the hell? Like, this is only 80 pounds. And so, like, I was intrigued. So I did what any good coach would do. I, I continued to use it myself and inflicted it with all my clients um, and, you know, they're like, oh, dying and sweating. I'm like, this is great, right? This is yeah. awesome. 
And then I just had to take a step back eventually. I'm just like, what are we actually trying to accomplish? And so when I looked at, like, what were the actual, you know, results we were going for? And was it just, like, just a thing to shock people with, or was it actually, like, an effective training uh, modality? And so, you know, outside of just being varied, we didn't have really a plan of how we are using it. We were using a lot like we would, like, substitute a barbell. So, you know, hold it, squat, you know, we'd clean it a little bit, you know, and so forth, row it, press it. Um, but then I started trying to find everything I could on sandbags. And it was pretty interesting because the Internet's pretty gracious. You know, when people uh, email me and they're like, oh, you didn't invent sandbags. I'm like, okay, I never claimed I did. But the problem is if you look through the you know history and, like, how much content there is, I could only find, like, about 40-some pages written about sandbags. Wow. Which, to put that in perspective for people listening to this, there's a book, uh, a classic book on Olympic weightlifting that's almost 600 pages. Jeez. So, six, almost 600 pages on two lifts. And the whole history of sandbags had maybe a ballpark of 40 pages, mostly with pictures of uh, just random stuff. So, it just dawned on me. I'm like, okay, well, here, here's the problem. We don't have a good system and we don't have a good tool. Because when I, when I was using it at the time, my duffel bags, you could always find me in the commercial gym because it was a trail of sand that followed me all through the gym. <laughs> they must have loved uh, you, eh? <laughs> yeah, they loved me. And then I would ask people, I go, like, our sandbags great. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're great. I'm like, do you use them? Like, no. Well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. If something's great, why don't you use it? And really, when it came down to it, it came down to the two factors. It, there was no system of implementation. And there was no standard tool. And, and to give you guys an example of why the standard tool makes a big difference is this. Imagine if you said, hey, I want to improve my bench press. By the way, you're going to give me a program, but every time I go into a gym, the barbell is going to be extremely different. Sometimes it's going to be 14 feet long. Sometimes it's going to be 7 feet long. Sometimes it's going to be a foot long. Sometimes it's going to be one and a half inches in diameter. Sometimes it's going to be 5 inches in diameter. That would change how you lift every single time, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. It would impact your program. So without a standardized tool, people just end up just doing random things. And that's why the sandbag sort of suffered a lot. With, and, and people try to program it like something it was not. And one of the things we often say in our educational programs when we work with coaches, and we don't do it to be you know, sarcastic, we do it to try to change their mindset, is the first thing we tell people is this is not a barbell. And the reason that's important is because there's attributes that are very unique to our ultimate sandbag that we want to maximize. If you don't understand the unique attributes, then you're going to miss out on the whole concept of using it and the benefits it can allow for. So what we always tell people is sandbags themselves aren't great. If they were, people would be using them all the time. They'd be all over gyms. But it's a system of accomplishing specific outcomes that makes them potentially great. But you have to have the right tool and you have to have the right system to go about using them well. Yeah, when I look at the sandbag, like it's almost like a great alternative if, you know, if you have sore joints, it's just a little bit easier than, you know, strapping a barbell on your back with 225 and hoping for the best. Well, I think what it does is people innately figure out a lot of things, and they have a hard time doing it. You know, for in, in your example, you know, a lot of people, when they think of a squat, they always think of a back squat, and just because yeah. we're taught. But, you know, when you look at the axial loading upon and compression upon the lumbar spine, you realize most people suck yeah. when they do back squat. Definitely. And, in fact, we consistently test people. We test their mobility before a uh, back squat, and we test it afterwards, and their mobility always decreases. 
And a part of that is just the body does not take well to a lot of compression and axial loading. Um, and then, well, that begs the question, well, why do people do it? And, and unfortunately, the answer is not much more than because they can handle the most load. Um, but the research shows us that we, we've been taught wrong about strength. We're, we're always taught that the higher load yields the greater outcome. But that's not what the research shows at all. Research consistently shows that other variables stimulate muscle activity and strength outcomes more than just purely load. To give you an example, there's a classic uh, squat research um, paper that showed the same amount of muscle activity being used in two different loads, one that was 20 kilograms lighter than another. And if I tell people only that there's two types of squats, one has 20 kilos more than the other, which one was more effective, more times than not, people are going to say the heavier load. But the thing is, I didn't give you all the variables. Mm -hmm. It was a front squat compared to a back squat. So by changing the placement of the load, it changed the perceived stress in the body. Actually, the 20-kilogram load that was lighter produced the same amount of muscle activity. So load is not the determining factor. Other attributes are load position, body position, plane of motion, you know, are more important than just purely just load. So unfortunately, a lot of strength training programs become incredibly incomplete and non-progressive because we're focusing upon the only one of a multitude of variables. And so while load is an important variable, it's not the exclusive one that we're often taught for. So again, going back to your example, what people innately find with the sandbag and what we're doing is that they have all types of weakness that they wouldn't perceive otherwise. And when they started addressing these weaknesses, their overall strength goes up. And the reason they feel better with these lighter loads is because they're actually teaching their body to move more efficiently. And it's really, if you ask people, why do we strength train? Now, cosmetically, you can say bigger muscles, and that's all great. Mm-hmm. Say for fat loss. But if you're talking for like a performance benefit, it's to move more efficiently. So we go back time and time again. To understand how to create better movement efficiency, you have to understand how the body works. So they, to understand the sandbag and the way we use it is you have to understand how the body works. And so that's, the, that's where we start with people from, and that's where we understand, like, hey, did you know that your body is actually going to move better and feel better by holding the load in this position than having it on your back, even though it's lighter? And that, you know, that load isn't the only variable that you have to take into consideration because these other variables are going to impact the results you get too. And all of a sudden it opens up this big door for people to create better progressions and better systems and can address more specific needs. I also like giving the example to my clients though, and when they ask, like, so why are we using a sandbag or using this? And I'm like, well, would you uh, win in a wrestling match with a farmer? And they're like, yeah, no way. And I'm like, well, this is the same concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think yeah, it's funny because the gym is a very sterile environment. Yeah. And I always give that, I always used to give this story about when I played basketball and I used to go, I grew up in Chicago and there was a lot of good basketball players. And if you wanted to play the really good basketball players, you go down to the park. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you see the best basketball players that weren't on any teams, but they were just great park players. And then, you know, you never feared the kid with the super clean shoes and the perfect ball and the yeah. super nice. You always, you always read the kid with the shoes that were kind of broken down the ball that looked like it's seen better days. And you know, the maybe a couple holes in those shirts because you know, they could play anywhere, anytime. And, you know, a lot of times in the gym, people train only as though they can only perform when everything's perfect. Everything's balanced. Everything's organized. Everything's just right. And what the sandbag represents is like what you're saying, a little bit more this real world environment. Mm -hmm. This idea that things aren't always perfect and every rep is going to be slightly different. And so what you need to do is you have to understand 
the side of what we call movement accuracy. One of the things that makes a sandbag so incredibly challenging is that if you don't have good movement accuracy, it's not an issue of just how strong you are. It's can you move accurately enough to move the weight? Generally, when we think of moving weight, we think of it just as a muscular effort, but it's not. It's actually a test of efficiency too. So it's a shift in how people think about fitness as well. And that's sort of where that old time strongman side comes in is like, one thing they would always say is, how do you make a lightweight feel very heavy? And there was a reasons that they would say that, but one of them is that you would challenge different qualities of your body when you did that. And when you started challenging how you move differently, you could start moving in all these different types of arenas. And that's the cool thing to us. Is like when people train our system for a while, when they do transition to something else, when they try something else, they pick it up so much faster because they're not used to being in this incredibly sterile environment that most people train in. Yeah, definitely. How would you like program, like if someone wanted to start using a sandbag in their workouts, like how would you program like a full day for like an average person to do like say a full body workout? So we obviously function off moving patterns, which may not be, you know, incredibly new to a lot of people you're talking to, but the moving patterns we look for are, uh, we follow sort of Dr. McGill's line and Dr. McGill is one of the leading experts in spinal mechanics and health and we look at how the body functions, and we talked about that being our baseline. So he looks at, you know, push, pull, hinge, squat, lunge, balance, twist, and gait. And, you know, what we do is we look at, if I ask you, what's the most fundamental movement pattern we all do? The answer should be gait. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, people say hinge and squat, and I go, squat? And they're like, yeah, to go to the bathroom. I'm like, how much are you going to the bathroom, <laughs> like, compared to walking? Yeah. Okay, so, but the problem is that, what we do in everyday life, i.e. walking, is hard to understand in the gym, right? Because we think of exercises. But all those qualities I just said, push, pull, hinge, squat, lunge, are all qualities of walking. So what we do is we break down our exercises in terms of those movements. So, for example, if we're going to have a horizontal push, that may be something like our lateral drag, which if I'm in a push-up position, I'm slowly dragging the weight across my body. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're going to have... A hinge, that might be represented by a clean or a rear step deadlift. Um, if we're going to have a lunge, that may be our shoulder lunge, max lunge. So we're going to break it down by pattern. And by we're not going to do every pattern because that gets very fatiguing, but we'll probably pick, you know, if I do a push, a horizontal push, I'll do a vertical push the next time. So that would be something overhead. So that could be a press. So I usually do the opposite. So if I do a, a dominant hinge movement, like a clean on one day, we may do a squat the next time. Um, that generally yields about four to six exercises in a workout. And because they're so full body and so demanding, that takes a lot of the energy and the nervous system to do well. So people are pretty fried just out of four or six exercises. And we tend to tell people, usually start on less than more because people are surprised at how tiring it becomes because you're integrating so much of the body at once. So you're being more efficient with the workout but you do have to think differently. It's not, hey, we're going to focus on your pecs today. Hey, we're going to focus on your triceps. The nice thing is you'll get that side cosmetic benefit because you are activating a lot of those muscles, but you can do it at a higher frequency because you're not just obliterating them in one workout. So how heavy is heavy enough for, like, say, a guy or a woman if they were to, like, choose a sandbag? So usually as a starting uh, place, you know, we have two variables when we talk about sandbags. We have load and we have dimension. Um, so the one reason that we have five different sizes is not just a loading factor, it's a, it's a dimensional factor too. 
So, you know, generally we tell guys a strength bag, uh, which is a little bit longer, uh, about uh, 50 pounds or about, you know, 24 kilos is good. Uh, for a lady, um, generally we're going to recommend like our, our power bag at about 30 pounds or somewhere about 15 kilos is pretty good. Uh, what's going to happen from that is that's a baseline. And so the size will also influence the exercise. So, which is a, a different concept for a lot of people. So certain drills are done with better with certain dimensional, uh, sandbags. So that's going to give people a good starting point. And where people usually go from there is that the guys will usually go a little bit lighter and smaller and the ladies will go a little heavier and bigger. Uh, just, just because not always, but you know, it fits people's personalities better. Women are a little bit more into movement. They'll do a little bit more of the complex patterns at first. Uh, guys, they have to sort of be reinforced that this can be challenging, even though it's significantly lighter than they may be used to lifting. Um, but time and time again, like people are shocked at how heavy like 50 pounds is or 30 pounds is uh, compared to what they've been lifting. Like I would say like a very heavy ultimate sandbag is like 100, 120 pounds, which doesn't sound heavy when you talk about barbell weight or even a lot of times for people with kettlebells. But it, it's something that I would say the average guy can't even lift a 120-pound bag. It'll probably crush him. <laughs> yeah. So from like a fat loss perspective, do you think a sandbag would be a useful tool for someone? Absolutely. I mean, because if you look at one of the biggest uh, principles of fat loss, it's basically not adapting to a stimulus. Um, you always want to keep some level of chaos in the system. The more efficient you become, the less fat you burn, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I run the same mile the same way every single time, I'm not going <laughs> to lose much body fat. So the beauty of the sandbag is that every rep is just slightly different, and the way you can move it is different enough every time that basically you can create a lot of the similar movement patterns but uh, stimulate them in different ways. So you always keep that little level of chaos uh, in, in the body system. And so, I mean, I think that's why it's such a popular fat loss tool is because it's a fun way of training because a subtle change to an exercise makes a big difference. But it's an effective change, too, where you feel like you're working. It's not just like you're sitting there and you're just hoping that it's calorie burning. Like, you feel like your body just gets that tired sense. It's sort of like I tell people after they – you can't point to a specific muscle. You just sort of feel this tired. And that's where, really, you're feeling all those muscles being active and that's being really efficient with the training. You know, if I had to choose – and I know I sound biased, but the reason that we go after the sandbag so much is because – when we sit down and go over, like, I decide which tool I'm going to use in a workout. I got to use a tool that can't be done with something else. If I'm using a tool that just is for variety's sake, it doesn't have a lot of meaning to me. Mm -hmm. I, when I pick a tool, if, it's, if I pick a kettlebell, if I pick a dumbbell, if I pick a band, or if I pick a TRX or something like that, I'm picking it because it does something uniquely different than anything else. And so the reason that so much of our workouts do consist of our ultimate sandbags is because when it comes time to say, what does another tool do better? We have a hard time figuring that out. So, you know, unless the tool is going to bring something unique to the equation, we just change the other variables. We don't need to actually change the equipment very much. I also like using the sandbag for like conditioning at the end of the workout. Cause it, yeah, like you'd say, you can pick up a 50 pound bag, but if you choose the right exercises in five minutes, that thing is going to make you finished and done by the end of the five minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, 
we have very well-conditioned people that start training in our system and they get tired very quickly. And a lot of it is just learning how many holes in their strength training they really had. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of training programs, unfortunately, don't do a very good job of building the body up like we think. They just leave a lot of massive holes. So when you put people in positions where they have to be more accurate with their movement, they have to be more precise, they have to use the right muscles and they get exposed, then it just puts a lot of stress on the body. It's a positive stress. And they're going to get better, but I think that's why they're just constantly just shocked how at lighter weights just become so much more uh, challenging to them because it's just movement in ways that they just haven't been doing. And what they most people have become is they become specialists in the gym. And they're very good at a very select number of things, but you ask them to move in more drastic ways and more challenging ways, and they just don't have that ability. And so you can do a lot in a very short amount of time in a very short uh, amount of space. Uh, that's why, you know, we do a lot of military programs is that they can take it anywhere and do a very small areas and do a lot within that given amount of time and space that they have available. You know, you've like given your client something really good when you like introduce, like say the sandbag for the first time and they're doing it and they're like, why is this so freaking hard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's good. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things too, when you talked about, you know, earlier that you have people that come from many different backgrounds. And so they have preconceptions about a lot of different things. And most people don't have a preconception about the sandbag. Like, you know, you'll have people that come to, in the gym. They'll be super psyched by the barbell. Some will be totally threatened by it. Mm-hmm. Um, with the sandbag, they just don't know what to think. So it's usually the impact and the outcome that the implement provides that starts to take people that direction. Now, I'll say most people, like, have this love-hate relationship with it because it's just flat-out work. You know, and I always tell people, they're like, why are we doing this? I go, because if I thought there was a better and more efficient way of getting results, we would do that. I don't make people work hard just for the sake of working hard. We do it because it's going to fit in with our ideas of getting the fastest result possible. And it's going to give them the best result possible. And so I think when you put it in that terms and when people start to experience it and they see it and they get better at things and they, you know, I always tell coaches, you got to be careful what you get excited by. Because clients usually just get excited by what you get excited by. Mm -hmm. Because they don't have much of a frame of reference. Like, I don't know, is a deadlift 200 kilos good? Most people don't know. But if you act super excited about it, they're going to think it's awesome. So it's just putting the right priorities and the right thing. If you you show people how they progress and how they got better by things and, you know, they're going to be more excited by the process. They're going to be more apt to train. And, you know, I remember that I have one client. She's awesome. She's like an older Southern Belle type and, she just kept telling me time and time again how uncoordinated she was. And I'm like, why do you keep saying you're so uncoordinated? Like, I kept throwing things at her, and she did great. It was just because that was the what she had been told her whole life, that women growing up in that area of the country at that time were not supposed to be athletic. It wasn't feminine. So she had this pre-programmed idea that she was not coordinated. But by giving her things that she could do and be successful by, she started breaking that down to the point where her biggest thing was not how much weight she lost, but the fact she'd be so excited to go back home to her husband and tell her husband what she did that day because she was so proud of herself. Like, to me, that's a bigger win in the scope of fitness than just, like, losing inches and pounds was empowering this woman who had been told her whole life that she wasn't good enough to be fit and giving her the ability to realize that she could use her body in these incredibly athletic ways and be proud of herself. That's why I really enjoy training women because, you know, they step into the gym. They don't really have any kind of, you know, idea what's going to happen. And then... You train with them for a while, and then you're like, oh, my God, you just deadlifted your body weight. And they're like, oh, is that good? It's like, yeah, it's freaking amazing. 
And then you go to, like, they start doing chin-ups. You're like, holy crap, you're doing chin-ups. They're like, yeah, I'm ge- I am getting strong. And it's just amazing to see that. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people, I go, you know, people usually don't come to us because things are going really well. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they come to us because things aren't going well. And so their first inclination is not to tell you how awesome they are. Their first thing is to probably put up a self-defense mechanism of telling them, telling you what they can do. That's why people tell you, you know, I'm not good, I'm not fast, I'm not strong, I'm not, I'm not able to do that. It's because they actually believe in it. It's a self-defense mechanism. It's very much like when I used to work with obese children, you know, parents were very much discouraged why their kids wouldn't even try um, to exercise sometimes. And I said, well, you have to understand, you know, Johnny doesn't want to look stupid. And, you know, I think adults are very much the same way. When, when you don't feel good about yourself and you put yourself in an environment where you feel like you're going to look stupid, I think that's where the defense mechanisms go up. And when you can start breaking those down and you start seeing that you're capable, then, you know, the door swings wide open. It's sort of like if we were as fitness pros put ourselves in an environment we wouldn't be comfortable in. I don't know, maybe it was cooking or maybe it's like I was saying earlier, accounting, and we feel like we're going to say something stupid and someone says, you did, did well, we're going to be more apt to be part of that process and be more active. And the same thing is with fitness, and that's why having a system in place rather than just a bunch of exercises that you throw people it's so important because if you know where to start people and how to make them successful, most people are not going to not come back because they're successful. Most people don't come back because you don't make them feel part of the process and they can't be good. Oh, definitely. Like I, That's why I also think like the gym that they go to, the community and the culture have to be like, spot on because if you just kind of go to, an example again, is like the big box gym, the moment you go in, almost everyone's, everyone's eyes are like looking at you and judging you and seeing what you're going to do whereas if you go to a gym with a trainer and the whole staff knows who you are all the clients around you know who you are you kind of feel like oh i'm not alone in this and everyone else here is to help me absolutely i mean i tell a lot of young coaches you know i go i travel now around the world and i go to a lot of different gyms i always look at a couple of different things on on their websites and their and their gyms when i went enter and that's let's go where where's the client highlights um i think a lot of trainers you know, we're taught and we're just our program that we need to highlight ourselves a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the most meaningful thing to our clients. I think our clients are looking for someone like them in our gym. So when they come to the website, you know, they want to see someone like them. Um, you know, if they go to the gym, they want to see someone like them doing the program. You know, if I'm, you know, right now I'm 40 years old, I've had some spinal fusions. If I go into a gym and it's a bunch of like 18-year-old football players, I'm not going to feel like that's me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, I'm looking for someone who's maybe in their forties or, you know, things like that, you know, or if I'm a woman and I'm going into a gym and it's like guys with half their, all their shirts off, you know, sweating up a storm, I may not feel like, you know, this is a place for me. So I always tell coaches, one of the best things that you can do is make the clients, the superstars and they are the superstars. They're the ones coming to you for the service anyways. And, but having them be your voice is better than anything we can say as a coach, because, like we said at the very beginning, we may not be what that person wants to emulate. So they have to find that role model. If they see someone like them doing the things that you're going to be asking them to do and they're being successful and they're positive about it and they're excited about it, that's a better buy-in process than anything you know we could say in a million years through our marketing or other avenues. So I think, yeah, I mean, finding an environment that works for the person but making sure that we're aware that we're trying to create those environments to make those people feel welcome are definitely important. Yeah, I also find it difficult sometimes because, like, you know, you'll have a client who goes on social media and they read up on something or they see 
someone on Instagram half naked, shredded, and they're like, oh, I need to be like that. And then the next day they come to you and they're like, why don't I look like that? And it's like, ugh. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I mean, I mean I'm sure you don't. You have to have those coming to truth moments. Like, yeah. I remember I had a client. Um, she, she, I would train, she and her, her husband independently for quite some time. And um, they were very well off, but she was unhappy. And just personal stuff that was just hers that made her unhappy. And so she'd always turn to food when she was upset. And I remember she came in the gym and she's like, oh, I have to tell you. I ate a whole bag of Doritos Ranch last night, right before bed. And I'm not talking one of those small bags. I'm talking one of those big bags. I said, okay. I said, are, are we past that then? Or are we, are we past? And she's like, okay, yeah, I'm over it. Probably about 20 minutes later, she's like, Josh, how do I fix my butt? My butt's just not looking good. I go, you know, a bag of Doritos doesn't help. <laughs> and it's not to embarrass her. It's to make them understand that really, at the end of the day, they have more control than we do over how they look. And they have to also want to be into a lifestyle that's conducive to what they want. You know, I talked to my wife, she goes, she, she falls victim to the I should look like this philosophy a lot. And she looks great, but she thinks she has to be ripped and shredded. I go, well, do you not want to be able to be social? Do you not want to be able to have a glass of wine? Do you not want to be able to do this and that? Do you want to live around food constantly, like where your life revolves around food? And she's like, I don't want that life. I go. So you want the result, but you don't want the lifestyle. So they can't be cohesive. You can't have both. So I said, you know, you have to be willing to be happy or what's more important. Is it the lifestyle or the result? And, you know, and then I think unfortunately a lot of clients don't realize what goes into looking like what they see sometimes, obviously. And that comes with a little education too. And go, listen, you know, pose it to them. If you want to look like this, this is what that takes. Do you want that? And there's a moment of honesty, like, not really. You know, I want to be able to go out with my family on vacation, and I want to be able to celebrate my son's birthday and have a piece of cake with him. Because, I mean, you've probably been around it. I've been around it where you go out with these people, and God bless them. They're ripped, and they're sticking to their diets and their macros, and yeah. they can't eat with you, but they can pull out their protein shake. Um, you know, or they can't, you know, they, they, they would love to go out with you that night, night but they can't. they got to go do their cardio. That's fine. That's the lifestyle they're happy with. But you have to have the client understand, is that the lifestyle they want? And so, you know, again, it's, it's a priority thing, and it's just about education, I think, a lot of times. I was going to say, why do you think, like, the whole idea of, like, weight loss is such a challenging task for an average person? Do, do you think they have, like, unrealistic expectations, or do they feel like everyone's succeeding but them? Like, what's your kind of take on that whole thing? <laughs> I guess my analogy is, is like, why, why do fitness people have such a hard time with money? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, recently, we recently moved to Las Vegas and um, became friends with a gentleman who's the department head of exercise science for UNLV. And his wife is actually a nutritionist, and she's worked with sports teams. And she actually works a lot more with um, people with uh, eating disorders. And... Uh, she has a book coming out, and she a lot of times she won't work with people on their eating habits unless they're seeing a therapist. And I think the challenge is that there's such an emotional side to fitness and food. Um, it's it, food is a very social thing. It's attached with the main, you know, uh, emotional habits. You know, families. Some families you, you eat when you're angry. You eat when you're sad. You eat when you're happy. Um, so there's a lot attached to food. Uh, I think you know people not addressing the real problem. Like, 
you know, years ago, I, I, I did a sales course by a gentleman. He said, to sell effectively, you always have to find the person's pain. And I didn't understand what that meant right at that moment, but what he went on to explain was that when someone says they lose, want to lose 20 pounds, that's kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? Like, what's yeah. 20 pounds? And then you ask more questions and you find out that uh, 20 pounds was what they weighed in high school, um, the last time they felt good about themselves, and the last time, by the way, they were in a happy relationship. So there's more attached to the 20 pounds than just this mysterious 20 pounds. And so I think, you know, what happens for a lot of people is they never take the time to really identify why they're aiming for the goals that they're aiming for. And, you know, by not doing that, then they can't address the real issues. And there might be times like, hey, you know, we may not be the right professionals. They may need therapy at the same time, which is not an embarrassing thing in my book at all. Like, I would applaud someone if they admitted to me, hey, they're coming to me for fitness, but they're dealing with some um, emotional stuff on their own with a therapist because, to me, you can't do one with the other, uh, out the other. It's not like people don't know that broccoli is good for them, yeah. right? It's not like they don't know that exercise is not good for them. So there's other obstacles that are staying in their way. Sometimes it's family. I mean, I'm sure you face that where people in their social circles try to derail them because mm -hmm. they feel embarrassed by it, right? Um, there's people that have these things like, I only exercise when I feel like I'm just going to, like, it's just going to hurt the whole time. Exercise is going to hurt the whole time. Like, you wouldn't want to do something if you thought it was going to hurt the whole time. So I think it's also changing people's perceptions of what exercise and fitness programs are and, and setting realistic expectations and, you know, and, and staying in the right environment. Like, can, you know, what, what made Starbucks so successful, right? It wasn't like the most amazing coffee in the world. Is that they became that other place for people to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, and, and for all the problems that CrossFit has, I think one thing they've done very well is they've become a place for that other place for people to go. Like people will actually go to their CrossFit box instead of the bar, instead of going home or instead of another hour of work. And so I think if you can create an environment where people actually enjoy being there and it starts to boost the other positive habits, then I don't think fitness becomes that challenging. I think fitness becomes simple. And I also think people got to give themselves a little bit of a break. Like I think people see us and they think we're perfect all the time. I remember a client was like, during the holidays, like, do you like cookies, Josh? I'm like, I love cookies. He goes, but you don't eat them. I go, oh, I try not to eat the cookies. He goes, well, I don't understand. I go, well, I love cookies. They're just not good for my goals, so therefore I try to avoid them. And so we have, like, I have certain habits that we don't have in our house. We don't keep bad foods in our house because that just encourages bad behaviors for us. So it's dealing with behaviors. It's dealing with emotions. It's, dealing, it's trying to find the real pain. I think goes a long ways for people than just going, hey, you know what? You just didn't do this exercise. If you just did this workout program, it'd be it'd fix everything. I think it's often much deeper, and when you're honest with people and people are honest with you, then I think you get to the actual success for them. Yeah, I find sometimes a lot of people, too, are always kind of jumping ship to another, you know, this is going to be it because I've tried everything else, but they haven't really tried everything else. But they right. keep like jumping to like, oh, I'm going to do this diet instead. Well, I bought this book and I'm going to follow this cleanse or whatever. And they keep kind of going over and over and spilling over to bad habits. And they're like, oh, I'm, it's probably something with my metabolism then. Yeah, but you're, so you're always one of those people. I always say, say, say like family falls in yeah. that category. You know, like, you know, family, well, how do I lose this? <laughs> and you're like, I can't even start with you. Um, just because they're not, they're not really wanting to address the issues. And so you're always, it's like we talked about at the very beginning. You've got people that are just not right for you. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's we want to help people so much as coaches that we sort of try to push and push uh, upon helping those people, even though they're not wanting it. And it becomes a lose-lose situation. So when someone does that, you know, a lot of times I'm like, that's just their personality. They're searching for something they haven't found yet. And that's cool. But I'm going to try to put our focus upon the people that are willing to listen, that are willing to be the, the type of people we want to work with and we can help lead in a positive path. Because you just can't help everyone, unfortunately. Yeah. I find it interesting just, like, watching clients' behaviors. And I've said this example before in my previous episodes, but I have one client in particular. He's been with me, I think, now three years. And in the beginning when I was training him, he was, like, showing up one you – know, he signed up one day a week, and he maybe would show up in a month twice and kind of just, like, went through the motions, whatever. And only this year – He's like, okay, I need to take this stuff serious. He went to three days a week, started eating breakfast, had protein shakes at work, ate vegetables, and I was like, what, what, like, what happened? And he's like, it was just time. I had enough of it, and it was just time. So it's almost like, almost the timing too, and when people actually make it a priority, and they're like, I'm gonna go all in, and not just do it because I have to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I give. Um... You know, I, I like to say I'm just getting old and wiser and maybe just getting old. Um, it's like when I hear like a lot of coaches, they'll, they'll bellyache about their clients. Mm-hmm. I go, okay, how much money you got saved? And they look at me a little funny. I go, how's your investments doing? And they look at me funny. Like, what, what investments? I go, we're, we like to think because we like to address the fitness side that we're healthy. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're human beings too. And we do things that we like to do and we're good at. And, you know, sometimes, like, even for us, like, I know trainers that are brilliant coaches, but they suck at saving money, (laughs) you know? And, like, but how can you suck at saving money? You just have to put it in the bank and not use it. Yeah. So I think to your point, I think it's just, like, certain people get to a certain point in your life, you're like, okay, that's enough. I got to start changing habits, you know, and I got to figure out what I really want to accomplish and if I'm going to go on the right path for it. And we all need that wake-up call. Sometimes it's different for everybody. And, you know, you... I've had clients that I've worked with for over a decade that their real goal was just to be accountable to work out. Like their goal wasn't to lose X amount of inches, lift X amount of weight. They just knew that they needed to come to me every time because it, they felt good when they worked out with me. And that was their goal, and that was fine. And you know, for me to push a different agenda on them wouldn't have been appropriate because that was good enough for them. If they came to me and said, hey, Josh, I want to accomplish X, then that changes the conversation. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, it's like... For some of them, it's just like they just had to get to this time. You know, I, I and another one is like, and I'm sure you've gone through it where you train a spouse and they're like, my significant other has to work out with you. Yeah. I go, no, they don't. I said, they don't have to, when they want to work out with me, they're more than welcome to. But you trying to pressure them will not be a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's like I never force fitness upon anyone, you know, because it's one of those things like you have to be, it takes up a lot of your life, doesn't it? I mean, you have to make time for it. You have to do other things like get good sleep. You have to start changing your eating habits. You have to, you know, go to the gym, give effort where, you know, maybe that's something that you enjoy doing. You, you may rather be going somewhere else, but you're going to make an effort to go here. Um, so it's, it's a big commitment, I think, bigger than people think. And that's why a lot of people, like, get overwhelmed. And that's why, you know, unfortunately, too, our industry sells the easy pill still, like the magic pill, like, hey, just do this. It'll be fine. And, like, because that goes to what we all want, right? Yeah. I mean, if you told me I could download an app that would make me a million dollars, I'm downloading it, <laughs> you know? But that's just not reality. And so it's, like, I think 
you know, when people see that, they have to be in that right mindset. And that's why, like, you see the fast drop off after, the, after New Year's, right? People yeah. get hyped up. They're more like, it's almost like they're on a sugar high, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. so amped up nowadays. I can't wait. Okay, I'm going to come down. I don't really want to put this type of effort in. And the ones that actually last are the ones that were in that right mindset. And I, that's why I think having, like, the initial con- the session that I have with people, like, we'd always do a little workout, get them moving a little bit because that's what they expected. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to talk to them. I wanted to find out where they were coming from. I wanted to find out what was going on in their life. You know, I'd ask them things like, have you done an exercise program before? If they said yes, I'd be like, how come you're not still doing it? Uh, I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't have time for it. And I'd be like, did you enjoy doing it? Was it something you'd want to do again? And people always ask, are like really confused when you ask them those questions because yeah. no one's ever asked them that. No one's ever asked them, why aren't you working out? Why don't you want to eat better? Or, you know, what, what's the obstacles you face? What are the challenges? You, you know, I'm not going to make you eat broccoli if you tell me that's the food you hate the most in the world. Because, you know, why? It's just not going to happen. Let's find what you will do and make that work. And then let's start building off that positive habit. And it's funny when I, like, if I got a new client for a consultation and they're all, like, amped up and jacked up to start working out, they're like, yeah, I want to, like, work out four days a week. And I'm like, okay, well, what were you doing before? Nothing. Maybe right. we should start, like, with one day a week and kind of build on that. And they're almost like, oh, really? But I'm like, you, you got to know that if you go, yeah, like you said, in New Year's, if you go too hard too fast, you probably end up burning out and you're like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. No, it's like I remember a strength coach uh, one said, he's like, he would always turn away the athletes that would come in and be like, I'm willing to do anything you say. He's like, really, you don't want to do anything? He's like, yeah, anything. It was bullshit. <laughs> because you know, then the first thing you'd be like, okay, got to cut down your drinking. Oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you got to come here at 5.30 in the morning. Can I do seven? Well, you're not willing to do anything. Yeah. You just, you just, you just, so I think it's like, you know, I appreciate people's enthusiasm. And I don't want to derail that, but I also want them to be realistic. Like you said, you know, if you're coming from zero and you're going to go to four, let's, let's show me you can do three. Yeah. You know, show me consistently can do three, and then we can have that discussion. Do you need four? Um, you know, one of the things I try to help young coaches with is the fact that it's really hard because we're not really we're taught about sets and reps, and we're taught about exercise, but we're not taught really how to communicate with people and how to work with people. And that's a, such a big part of what we do, oh, yeah. but to sit there and like have the person set forth realistic expectations and realize that they're paying us for our expertise. So you should be the determining factor. Like you don't go to your doctor, your doctor doesn't say, take these twice a day and go, how about I take them four? <laughs> yeah. No, you're relying on your doctor to say, no, you take that twice a day. Um, so I think, you know, to revisit and when I have that discussion with your, the client, go like, you're, you're, if they're trying to do something else, go, you're paying me to be the expert. So if you want me to be my expertise, then this is what we should start with. And I sort of treat it almost like a dojo, right? Mm-hmm. You can't walk into a martial arts student and go, I want to be a black belt. Yeah. No, you have to earn it a little bit. You have to earn and show me that you can do it, and then we'll take you to the next level. Even in physical therapy, they do it, right? When I started my physical therapy, I didn't walk in there and go, yeah, I'm going to start, you know, some serious weights on my squats. No. Show me you can hip bridge, you know? So I, I think it's just, I, I, it's not sometimes in our demeanor to be like, hey, you know, take control of the situation. But I think that's innately what some people want because I, I'll tell you what, a big mistake I've made in the past is when I've let the inmates run the asylum, you know, analogy, when I was just like so desperate to have clients in, in the beginning that I just said okay to everything they, they wanted. Yeah. 
And the problem with that is it wasn't what was best for them. It wasn't what was best for me. It wasn't a good experience for them either. So I, I think it's just, you know, if you have a system and a philosophy you believe in, being true to it, being honest with people and staying forth those and holding people accountable to them, and then that way they actually end up respecting you more and actually part of the process makes it easier to weed out people that work with you well and people that don't. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so now last question because we're already at an hour and a little bit over. But um, where can people find you online to learn more about sandbag training? And if you have any projects or speaking engagements, where can they all find that stuff? You know, we update our blog probably five, six days a week with free information. Um, so if people want to go to our website, it's dvrtfitness.com. Um, we have over 700 free videos. Uh, people go through our website. On there, too, they obviously can learn about our ultimate sandbags, but we have our, our, our certifications and our workshops uh, list on there. Um, we don't usually post our um, conferences, but, you know, if you email us through the website, we can give you a list of events that we're going to be at. But a lot of times I tell people, you know, we have a lot of um, resources on there, free resources and a very low-cost resources, too. If people want to check out our training programs, we have a lot of downloadable programs from corrective exercise performance to fat loss. So something that, you know, everybody's sort of need and want. And, you know, our staff is super knowledgeable about what we do. So if anyone ever has a question, they can just email us to the website or they can email us at info at ultimatesandbagtrain.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate any time to share. All right. So the last one is Chris Scott Dixon, one of my most favorite people in the industry. She is another nutritional ninja, and she just makes nutrition really easy to understand, follow, and she honestly just is such a genuine person, and if you don't know who she is, 100% you need to start following her and her work, and here we go. Enjoy. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I have a lovely guest with me. Her name is Krista Scott Dixon. Hey there. Uh, so let's kind of jump right into it and kind of start with who you are, what you do, and kind of go from there. Okay, so I currently uh, design coaching curriculum for a company called Precision Nutrition that some of your listeners may know about. Uh, so we do online coaching for people who are looking to, you know, get in shape, change their bodies, get healthy, whatever. And then we also certify coaches like fitness trainers or anyone who wants to be a nutrition coach. So I also write some of the curriculum for our coaching certifications. So I kind of do like curriculum education. I do speaking and, and teaching and presenting as well. So that's my role at Precision Nutrition, and then my background is, I like to say that I'm an escaped academic, so I used to be a university professor, and, uh, and then I left academia, so this is what I'm doing now, and uh, it's, it's way better. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Yeah, like, I actually have my uh, level one in Precision Nutrition, and I thought it was awesome, and it kind of just gets to the point, and really easy to understand if you're a client getting coached by a PN coach. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for you for getting your level one. That's no joke, actually. Yeah. Well, I really want to get the level two, but I got to get some more spare cash. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I mean, from my completely unbiased point of view, I will say it is worth it. Yeah, I saw the curriculum in uh, one full year. That's, 
That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it really is. It's like trial by fire. Like you, you come out the other end and you're like not scared of any coaching situation ever again. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, so touching on that, what's kind of like your philosophy on nutrition and healthy eating and how would you like work with a client? Like how would your like whole process go with that? Um, this is such a good question because I, like the, the question of a philosophy, like is something I think a lot of people don't even think about, like, like, like what is your meta theory of coaching or, or nutrition or health? I think a lot of people actually don't ever stop to think about like, what am I even trying to do here? Right. And so it's such a great question. I've been sort of thinking about it and, and I don't know if I've actually come to a complete answer, but I think that one of the pieces is helping people like any kind of health, fitness, nutrition project should really help people change and develop and grow through finding their own strengths and their own resources. Because I think we focus a lot on people's weaknesses, quote unquote, or, you know, all the things that they're doing wrong or, you know, and, and clients do this too. Like they'll come to us and they'll say, oh, I was so bad and I did this and I'm, you know, doing that and I did this wrong and blah, 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 right? So it becomes this kind of like, confessional, right, of all the things they're doing wrong. And and to me, that just feels very demotivating and, and disempowering. And so I'd like to start from this question of, like, what are people doing right? And what do they actually know now? Or what skills do they have now? And it's often a lot more than they realize because most of our nutrition clients or health clients or fitness clients are like completely functioning people <laughs> in yeah. other areas of their life, right? They have jobs and they do grown-up things and whatever. So um, like, I, I think sometimes we forget to look for those strengths and resources. And so, you know, for, for example, like let's say you have a client who is super organized in their job and are having trouble with, you know, meal planning or something like that. Well, it's not a huge jump to say, hey, look, Let's take your skills in organizing and just bring those over into the domain of nutrition and food and health to get you organized with some kind of plan to help you eat better. And it's funny because it's so obvious when you say it and then people are like, oh, yeah, I never yeah. thought that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that actually makes coaching really nice and fun and smooth. So it, it really is a strengths-based philosophy. Like how can we take what you've got and make it better and make it stronger and also sort of treat the human body as a very resilient, resourceful thing, right? And explain to people, like, if you are eating poorly or, or doing things like emotional eating that you're not really happy about, it doesn't mean that you suck. It, it means that your body is trying to solve a problem in a very resourceful, you know, but incorrect kind of way. But if you, if you look at it from this perspective, you can go, actually, it makes complete sense that I might be emotionally eating or that my body would store body fat, you know, and sock it away for a rainy day. Like it's actually, you know, it shows that my body's actually working properly. So that's generally the, the, you know, approach I like to take. And then in terms of practical strategies, I really like to make it behavioral and experiential. So instead of like telling people a bunch of stuff, I'm like, Hey, here's a little thing to try, go and try it and, and see what happens. Or, here's an experiment, go and give that a, a go and just see what you notice, see what you discover. So it's very hands-on, very experience-based, very behaviorally based because really, you know, I mean, how many times have we tried to 
solve a problem by thinking about it, right? And we and we think and we think and we think and we're like, maybe I'll just think harder. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get nowhere, right? Exactly. Like we spend a lot of time thinking because it feels like we're doing something, but we're not actually doing something. So I like to get people actually doing something as quickly as possible. Yeah, like I find like when I deal with my clients, like the moment we talk about their diet, it's almost like they feel that they have to change everything and everything they're doing is wrong and they suck. And I'm like, honestly, let's just focus on one little thing that doesn't seem so overwhelming and you'll feel great right after. Like if it's just like you're skipping breakfast, it's like, why don't we just try having breakfast? It could be a freaking Pop-Tart to start. I don't really care as long as you kind of build that habit of thinking, oh, I need to start adding breakfast in that's not a big deal to me something like that yeah I love what you're saying there too because I think people might be listening and they might be saying oh but isn't a pop-tart terrible and and, you know like we can work with that but but I love this point that you're making that we're starting at zero right yeah and a pop-tart is better than zero so like every movement away from zero as far as I'm concerned is a bonus and the other thing I like in what you're saying there is we are playing the long game as coaches, right? So I don't really care what you do today. I don't really care what you do tomorrow. But over time, like over months and weeks and you know maybe even years, that's when things start to really unfold. So I'm not going to get too bent out of shape about what's happening like right in this minute, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like I like, uh, what's his face, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. He always says that he plays the game of the marathon and never the sprint. Mm -hmm. that'll that'll lead you to long-term success and that's what I try to tell everybody that I work with it's like it's not going to happen in 30 days it's not going to happen in 60 like one full year of being consistent with new lifestyle changes is going to like blow you away when you get to that point yeah and of course no one wants to hear that right (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was like can you fix 40 years of bad eating habits in a week please (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) I have something to go to on Saturday so if you could make that all go away that would be great (laughs) what do you mean I can't drop 10 pounds in a week (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so what's kind of like the most common obstacle or challenge you see with your clients or just in general with PN clients that try to fix their eating Um, You know, I think a lot of it has to do with what you were mentioning earlier, which is trying to do too much at once and then either getting overwhelmed or getting burned out. And, and I think there are different kinds of people, like the, you know, people, people have different headspaces around this. And so, for example, someone who is a really high-functioning, achievement-oriented person will try to do a lot and then just get burned out, right? Um, and then someone who is a little bit you know, kind of needs a little bit more of a chill approach. They might try to do too much and they'll feel overwhelmed. So in either case, you kind of come to nothing, right? Like both groups of people are, are, you know, frustrated and demotivated and and not really getting the results they're looking for. So I think for whatever reason in North America, we're just in love with speed and we're in love with stuff, like accumulating stuff and hoarding stuff and doing stuff. And, And so I think it's very difficult for most people to... Uh, have to slow down and be methodical and do one thing at a time because it's just not in our programming really for most of us. So I, I think that's one of the biggest ones. I mean, the cool thing is once people get the hang of it, they're like, wow, this is awesome, right? And they and they see how they can do it elsewhere in their lives. But I think that's really one of the, the biggest overarching issues. Um, the other one I would say is that 
and they're related, but people don't have a lot of self-awareness. Um, and part of that is just rushing. You know, part of that is trying to do a bunch of stuff at once. And so you're not really paying attention to any of them. It's like that classic, you know, driving while trying to send an email and listen to the radio yeah. and talk to the person in your car. And meanwhile, you're just like mowing down pedestrians because <laughs> yeah. you're not doing anything well. You're sending gibberish emails. Um, and so... You know, I think people really lack self-awareness, again, just because that's what it's like to live in 2016. Um, and so one of the very simple tools that we use is just helping people build awareness of what they're actually doing. So before I even try to solve a problem for a client, I'm like, let's just get a sense of what you're doing. Like keep a little journal or just take some notes or take a picture, like depending on whatever it is we're trying to look at. Um, just check in and notice what is going on and we'll worry about changing it later but just notice and often awareness on its own will start to change people's behavior which is really cool and it's also sort of a I don't know people people feel better when they're more aware of what's happening they feel less out of control of their lives so so those are the two kind of overarching ones I would say yeah I think self-awareness is huge because like when I work with a new client I kind of like just ask them, like, so, like, how's your eating going? And they're like, oh, I eat pretty good. And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know, but okay, let's just, let's, let's, let's hear you out, right? Yeah, I always think of Dr. House saying everybody lies, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're not, and in some of their, like, they don't, they're not trying to mislead us. It's more that the human brain is really, really good at hiding things from us, right? So, like, I might genuinely believe that I'm eating well. And I have been in that situation myself, right? I have my own nutrition coach, and I was lying to him. Again, not intentionally, but, like, convinced that I, that I was doing stuff I wasn't doing or, you know, not doing what I was doing. So um, so we're just really bad at it as, as human beings. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I always love that. Like, people are always saying, yeah, I eat really healthy, I eat pretty good. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's, uh, let's check that hypothesis out. <laughs> yeah. Well, even like for me, like even in my brain, sometimes it's like middle of the week and I'm like, ah, I could have a piece of cheesecake. I worked out today. It's all good. <laughs> but like that, that stuff adds up eventually if you constantly think like that. And I think with clients, if they're not even aware that they're making the small little habits every day or like, you know, the extra beer here and there, it eventually adds up throughout the week, throughout the month and boom, a year goes by and you're like, oh, how did I gain 10 pounds? Yeah, and you know the research shows that we can uh, incorrectly estimate our intake by something like, you know, in extreme cases like a thousand to fifteen hundred calories a day, which for people listening is like almost an entire day's worth of intake, right? Yeah, like it's definitely. it's quite a it's not like half a sandwich; it's like an entire sandwich and a milkshake. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like even for me, like I experimented uh, with a cutting diet and. It was like the worst experience of my life because I like calculated every single calorie. And at one point I was eating, I think it was like 1,500 calories or less. And the amount of food that 1,500 calories is, is so little. So that idea of like a regular client eating around 2,000 to 2,500, they're probably overeating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing I was going to ask is like when you're coaching a new client like at what point do you kind of see like a breakthrough or a success with them is it like at the 30-day mark the two-month mark or like half a year like what's kind of the average 
Uh, you know, I think I think maybe there is no average. I think everyone is different, and uh, you know, some some clients are really ready. They're really like completely ready and willing and able, and they almost just take off right from the beginning. Boom! They're either their bodies respond quickly, or if their bodies don't respond quickly necessarily, their head does. You know, they they start changing their thoughts and changing their perspective and changing their habits like right away. Uh, those are like your early adopters, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then some people maybe for whatever reason are not in such a state of readiness, um, and it takes them a little bit longer, and they need more of a, a gentle and slow approach. Um, sometimes that's psychological, and sometimes it's also physical. Like, let's say you have a client who is coming to you who's recovering from an injury or, uh, you know, uh, coming off a long period of overtraining or has some kind of hormonal disruption that really needs a long, slow process of, uh, you know, nutritional adjustment or something. Um, so really everyone is, is quite different, but I would definitely say that we really see significant changes around the eight-month mark um, in our PN coaching program. So it's a year-long program, and... I, I really see changes about the eight-month mark. Like, people are like, oh, like, everything starts to kind of come together. And there are very, like, predictable stages, too. Like, the three- or four-month mark, people are like, they're getting the idea that this is not, like, all fireworks and parties, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're like, oh, this is, like, not... Uh, fun thrill ride all the time as I had kind of hoped. Um, and sometimes around the six month mark, they just need to take a break. But then by the eight month mark, it just sort of starts to come, like everything starts to gel. So I find that kind of a magical time, the eight month mark. And again, it's, it's different for everyone, but that seems to be optimal for most people where all the things come together. Okay. How do you uh, deal with like, I would, I would categorize them as, like, lame excuses where an example would be, like, if you have your client doing food logs and you kind of want to just have them do it just to see what they're eating, and then, you know, halfway through coaching them, they're like, ah, I don't really feel like I should be doing these anymore. It's too stressful for me or something like that. Like, how would you deal with an excuse like that? Yeah, I like so so in psychology they call this resistance, right? And yeah. and resistance is such a fascinating thing to me actually because resistance is really information about where people are at. And so if you're a coach and you kind of get frustrated by this, um, then that won't go anywhere because you'll be like, oh, why is this person being a jerk? <laughs> yeah. why, are they being, why are they giving me like bullshit excuses and stuff? Um, but if you treat resistance as insight and information and you get really curious about it, then it kind of opens up the door to learning more about people. So let's say you've given your client, let, let, a food journal is a perfect example, and and they're not doing it. For, and, and, they're, and either they're outright refusing, which sometimes happens, or they're doing the more passive forms of resistance like, oops, I forgot, right? Yeah. Oops, I forgot my sheet at home, or oh, I was too busy, or whatever. To me, that's very interesting, and I start getting curious about that. And so I talk about that, like, oh, uh, you know, um, tell me more about, about journaling for you. Like, is this something that you want to do right now? Um, do you need help? 
like because sometimes there are different reasons for it right like sometimes people are just disorganized right and so the coaching there is around organization and planning and finding a way to make it super easy for this person to journal so with that client I might be like hey you know what uh, you always have your phone with you snap a picture of what you're eating boom done takes you like five seconds right um, with another client who doesn't really want to know what they're eating right now we might talk about that like is this something that you're ready to do right now um is this bringing up something for you that you would really rather not deal with right like you can kind of have that conversation and sometimes they just need to say i don't want you as the coach to see what i'm eating right now you know what i mean which opens up a whole different kind of conversation because you're going in there thinking oh god what is wrong with this person they suck right like secretly deep down that's what you're thinking right (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, but then you leave out of that conversation going oh you know what this person is really struggling with some stuff and they think that i'm judging them and so this was actually like surfacing this resistance was actually an opportunity for me to talk about judgment in the coaching relationship, right? And so we, we kind of got it on the table. We were able to talk about like the fact that I'm not judging them and whatever. So, um, you know, and so we left that encounter with a renewed understanding of what we're even doing here and maybe the client was willing to do it. So I treat all quote unquote resistance as information. There's something else happening with the client that I don't yet understand or know about. Yeah, I kind of look at it as like there's something going on and they want to kind of make the excuse that, oh, I don't have time for the food logs, but there's probably something else causing them not to feel like they should be writing down everything they're eating. There might be something else. Mm -hmm. I kind of just like make little notes about like, okay, this person did this, but I don't really know how to like intervene or kind of like, hey, maybe you should try this or maybe you should do something else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and this is, I mean, I, I think a lot of the time too, as coaches, we feel like we should do something. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like I got to do something right away to fix this. And I encourage people to sort of not fix things right away. Right. Um, and so let's say we have this client, right. Who's come to us and they're just not doing this. Uh, you know, we can, we can, there's lots of, there's techniques for kind of working through this, but one of the options that's always on the table for you as a coach is to say, is this not, is this a good time to do this? Like, are you ready, willing, and able to do this right now? Um, and if the person says, yes, yes, absolutely. I really want to do this. You know, then the direction goes one place, but someone might say, you know what? I just, I don't want to do this right now. As the coach, you're like, okay, cool. I can always take that off the table. We don't have to do this right now. So, you know, for a coach, there's always the option of not fixing things right now. There's the option of allowing the client to sort of sit with the uncomfortableness of it. And you can, I mean, you can have a grown up conversation and say, look, um, you know, a food journal is a useful tool. Here's how I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm not seeing it as a way to judge you. It's just for me to understand what's happening. But, you know, right now, if you don't feel like that's something you want to do, cool, we'll try something else. Um, I have some ideas about what our next steps might be. Um, and you might have some ideas. So let's write all those down and see if we can come to sort of some place of agreement where we're both going to agree on what your next steps are. So you can always come back to it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, definitely. I, I always say like, it really depends on the person if they made like their health a priority at the moment that, you know, you're coaching them through nutrition because they might be, say, putting only 50% effort into improving their health while at the same time 
who knows if they're dealing with like a divorce or they like bought a new house or a baby's on the way. Like you, you don't really know the whole story. So you yeah. kinda, I feel like I always kind of try to give them as much slack as possible at the same time, kind of guiding them to the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if we come back to this idea of, of playing the long game, I mean, ultimately, the quality of my relationship with the client is vastly more important than making them do what I want them to do right now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so there have been times when I've said to a client, hey, man, we don't need to do this right now. Like, let's just, I was on a, a, a coaching call yesterday, actually, with a client who was just, just got back after a long traveling, you know, experience and was tired. And I was like, you know what, let's, let's just take a break. (laughs) You you just need a break right now. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Right? Like I think, uh, we don't need to be on clients cases all the time. We, we flow with them, right? We sort of assess the situation and in in our level two certification, we talk a lot about being client centered, right? Really having that empathy for the client, feeling for where they're at, that compassion for them and just trying to track with them, right? Some days they'll come in and they'll be like, yeah, let's kick the world in the ass, right? That, oh, great. That's that's when you have your superstar day. Other days are going to come in. Like you say, they've got a new baby. They're going through a divorce. Things are crazy at work, whatever. You know, really, for most coaches, unless you train elite athletes, most of your clients can't possibly give the level of attention to their health and fitness and training that you want them to, right? Yeah. If they just can't. The, the pie of their life it has so many other slices in it, right? So... Um, and that's something, sometimes it's hard to remember, but I, I do try to keep that in mind. Yeah. Like I also look at like the calendar year that, you know, during summer, I even tell clients the best outcome during summer is to maintain your weight. Realistically, you're probably not going to lose any weight and, you know, enjoy yourself. And then when you get back into September, like kind of get into that mindset where, okay, this is where it's time to get serious. Yeah, and, and there are these cycles in people's lives, right? And, and they're totally normal. And, and someone might just, you know, not feel like training for a month. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask is, like, how do you help motivate a client where they just seem like they have none? <laughs> I don't actually, to okay. be totally honest. Yeah. I, I mean, it comes back to the sort of ready, willing and able thing. Like I, I sort of see my job as a coach, not to give them motivation necessarily, but to uncover any intrinsic motivation that they have. So, cause often people want to do something, but they don't even really know why they want to do it. Right. Like they'll come to the gym and say, well, I want to lose weight. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Why? Well, I just do. Yeah. Okay. Like that's not a good, like that's not going to keep you getting out of bed in the morning, right? Like when it's a cold day in February and it's like six in the morning and that alarm goes off, I just do is not going to get you out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so really my job as a coach is more to help you articulate what is driving you, uh, what is pushing you, what is pulling you and also to shift your attention as much as possible towards the pulls rather than the pushes. And so what I mean by that is a push is like something you don't want, right? Like I don't want to be out of shape. I don't want to have pain in my knees. I don't want to die an early death, right? And that's kind of a good starter motivation because I think a lot of us come to fitness because of some scare or some cautionary tale or something bad happened to us, right? I mean, that's certainly how I started. Um, But you want to shift their attention to the pulls. And so the pulls are the intrinsic 
inner game kinds of benefits to things. Like I feel good inside when I do this. I feel good about myself. I feel more confident. I feel like a role model for my kids. You know, I have more energy. I'm sleeping better. Like all these things that really have nothing to do with how I look or how people, you know, perceive me or, you know, my external performance. They're all kind of like happening inside me. Um, and they're very positive things. Those are pulls. Like I like feeling good. So now that I've accessed feeling good, I want to do more feeling good. So as much as possible, I try to shift people away from, you know, what they don't want and towards what they do want. Hey, maybe I would like to be in good enough shape to go surfing in some really nice tropical location. Or, you know, maybe I want to take that trip of a lifetime and walk along the Great Wall of China or just whatever, right? So so as a coach, I don't really give them motivation. I, I uncover their motivation and remind them of it, right? Um, and, and kind of keep keep attuning to what is truly important to them. And that means accepting the possibility that maybe they won't care. Um, a friend of mine, another coaching colleague, has this idea of caring units. That as a coach, we have so many caring units. Um, and clients have caring units too, like how much they care. And we as coaches should care one unit less than our clients do. Like we should never care more than our clients do because we'll get nowhere, right? And we'll just get burned out and frustrated and you know pissed off at them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so so they have to care just enough, and we can help boost them, right? But ultimately, our job is really to contact them with what they want and what would be in alignment with their values. And we've had people start coaching at PN Coaching, you know, with uh, motivations that aren't really theirs. Um, and then they'll drop out. And then six months later, they'll come back and be like, oh, now I know why I'm doing this. And then they're great. Yeah, like sometimes um, when I'm talking to a client and say they're not numbers-based or like I don't care about dropping 10 pounds, I just want to feel better. And then I kind of try to pick and pull like what this feeling better mean to them mm-hmm. and like even if it's something small like you know if they take the stairs in their building and they're not huffing and puffing by the time they hit the third floor like that's a huge goal like to accomplish mm-hmm. and then of course like as a coach once you know what matters to them you just hit that and hit that and hit that and hit that like how are you feeling today oh are you feeling better awesome like you just keep drawing their attention to it yeah um uh, the next thing i was going to touch on is like kind of like eating behaviors because a good example is like if you have a client and you know they had a stressful day at work and they're like you know what I need a couple beers and then six pack later they're like I'm gonna feel horrible tomorrow (laughs) right (laughs) like how, how do you deal with that or like if it's to a point that it's really bad like how do you can you even like intervene or is that the point where you should be like, maybe you should go see somebody else. That's not me to help you with that. <laughs> right. Like I've always been curious about that. Cause I've had some instances with certain clients that will open up to me and like, just tell me everything laid on a table. And I was like in my head, like, wow, man, I wish I knew what to say right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I'm sure that almost every coach, if they're even halfway sympathetic has had some version of that. Right. Uh, whether that's eating, whether that's drinking, whether that's anything else, right? Life stuff. Um, and so this is this is where I come back to this kind of basic attitude of just curiosity and exploration and empathy and compassion, right? And so generally when people are doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing, they're not trying to be dicks about it. It's that 
for some reason, this is an attempt to solve a problem. And they're not solving it correctly. <laughs> you know, they're not solving it in like the most optimal way, but it is an attempt to solve the problem. So I have a stressful day at work. I come home, I have a beer, I feel better. Oh, problem solved, right? Yeah. And I have six beers. Now the problem is really solved. <laughs> okay. uh, but now, of course, I've created new problems, right? So, but, but, but if I understand drinking six beers as a misguided attempt to solve a problem, then it starts to make sense. And so as the coach, at Precision Nutrition, we have these questions. We call them the two crazy questions. They're actually from motivational interviewing, but we've just pared them down to two. And so the first question is, okay, what is good about what you're doing? Like, what is good about drinking a six-pack of beer? How does it benefit you? How does it serve you? How does it help you? And then the second question is, what would be bad about changing that? What would you have to lose? What would you have to give up? Well, you'd have to face your stress. That would suck, right? Um, and those are kind of like two opposite questions. That's what we call them the crazy questions because clients are expecting us to say, you know, well, that's so bad and you shouldn't be doing that and blah, blah, blah. But if we start by affirming that there's something good about what they're doing, all of a sudden it starts to shift things in their brain. They're like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Uh, geez, I guess it helps me relieve stress. Yeah, I guess that's why I'm doing it. And what would I lose? Well, I don't have any other way to cope with my stress. As the coach, you're like, ooh, ding, ding, ding. Now, now we start to see the path. Okay, this person needs a way to cope with their stress. Maybe I'm not even going to touch the beer drinking. But what I'm going to do is say, hey, you know what? How about on the way home from work, you just stop by here at the gym for like half an hour, and we'll work on some of that stress, right? Um, and by the time you leave, maybe you'll feel better and you won't want a beer, right? So you start, you start replacing um, you know, the unwanted behaviors with positive experiences. Uh, and so maybe the person, you know, comes to see you after work and they go home. They're like, eh, you know, I don't even need, really need to be here. I feel way better now. Yeah. So, so that's one way to play it. But I think the openness and the non-judgmental attitude are really, really important. Because if I say to you, hey, that's terrible. You shouldn't be drinking all that beer. You're going to be like, no, you can't take away my beer. Like you, you'll immediately dig in and become defensive or you'll feel like an idiot or, you know, whatever. So that kind of curiosity, like, wow, what's that beer about for you uh, is, is a great place to start. And also the empathy, like, man, I feel you. You know, your job must be challenging if that's what you feel you need to do. Um, and often just accepting people creates change. It's sort of a, a lovely coaching paradox actually <laughs> yeah like the clients that have like spoken to me about their issues i always tell them like that's awesome that you're telling me because that's just a sign that you know it's a thing you want to change and rather than just keeping it inside and you know secretly going around and just like eating your face off and hoping that it's just gonna fix itself it's probably not gonna work but the fact that you're telling me right now means yes. that you're like ready to get this thing out of your system. Yes, and that's such an important point. Uh, you know, as soon as they start talking about it and telling you and bringing you into that, the clock is starting to tick. You know what I mean? It's like now, now someone else knows and they have spoken about it and it can't be unspoken, right? So something has already fundamentally shifted in their relationship with this behavior. Yeah, definitely. Like, I even for myself, like way, way back, I used to binge eat a lot. Like I would eat super clean during the week and like, boom, Friday came. I was like my go-to, like wherever I wanted to go, I would go nuts for it. 
But then, like, the next day, I was like, oh, my God, I can't yeah. move. <laughs> yeah, well, you would be in very good company because I think, like, 99% of people in the fitness industry do something like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, like, what I remember what I was doing was, like, I would plan a workout the next day, like, fairly early in the morning, enough to make me, like, it wasn't worth it last night. Maybe I should, yeah. like, <laughs> keep my, like, last meal a little bit earlier. So now I'm, like, eliminating that, say, like, I don't know, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. of just crap. So at least you, like, decrease it a little bit, and then eventually it phased out, but... Yeah, and actually, you're bringing up a really good point here because that is one great technique for changing behaviors is just starting to slot in other behaviors that compete with them, right? So, like, maybe as the coach, you don't even touch the Friday night party time, right? Like, you don't say anything about it. <laughs> you just ignore it. But what you do is you book the client in for an early morning session on Saturday morning, right? And so now you've introduced something that competes with the behavior, um, and, and starts to kind of, you know, grapple for dominance. This happens to a lot of people who um, start running because uh, a lot of runners in particular for some reason, especially like endurance athletes, are often also people who have addictions. So, like, I think the mentality that makes you a, a really good endurance athlete probably also makes you a really good, you know, uh, person to be hooked on stuff. And a lot of them, you know, take up running and then quit smoking or quit drinking because the running is starting to give them that feeling or starting to compete with uh, the drinking and the smoking. So um, that's a great way to play it if you possibly can. Yeah, like I remember talking to one client that uh, was trying to eliminate the amount of beers that he was having. And I was like, you know what you could easily do is just rather than having the beers in the fridge, leave them out. You probably won't want a warm beer. (laughs) He's like, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'm like, yeah, it's like bulletproof. That is so great. Wow. Listeners, take that one. That is, yeah. that is excellent. A plus plus. Yeah. And, and the, the thing I love in what you're saying too, is you can kind of make, it's not really laziness, but you can kind of make your own laziness work for you uh, and by, by adjusting your environment so that the things that you like, you know, quote unquote, your bad habits, the things that you want to do are so much harder to do. Right. And your own laziness kicks in. You're like, Oh, I don't really want to oh, warm beer. Oh, I have to get it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, if you have to walk to the store to get ice cream, you're like, Oh, so far. It's dark. Right? So yeah. Just, you know, make it, make it harder to do the stuff that you would, you know, don't want to do and make it easy to do the stuff that you do want to do. Yeah. Actually what I do, like I like having snacks around the house, but if I have them around, I'll like just devour them. So what I've been doing is like with any kind of dessert or anything that I can put in the freezer, I'll put it in there. And anytime I'm like, oh, you know what? I want that donut that I bought two weeks ago. Damn, I have to thaw it out. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, I like that. Uh, the next one I was going to ask you is like, how do you deal with like stress management and how do you kind of come across with clients to, to tell them like the benefits of if you manage your stress you'll feel that much better and things like that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, sometimes people aren't even ready to manage their stress, actually. Like, it comes back to this readiness question and this sort of self-awareness and, and what's working for them. Honestly, some people love their stress. Like, as much as they bitch about it and, oh, I'm so stressed out, they kind of love it. And, and so using those two crazy questions can be really helpful because they start to realize, oh, like, I'm, I'm chasing stress, because it makes me feel important if I'm busy or um, it distracts me from something I don't want to confront in my life. A lot of male clients we see, especially um, work, work is like their drug, 
right? Work is their way to avoid a lot of their stuff in their life. Um, so I get curious about the value of stress for them in the first place. And I mean, some stress is kind of like random and unavoidable, right? Like let's say some random, horrible medical thing happens to a close family member and everything is just overturned in your life. Okay, that happens. But I think most of our stress is of the chronic, grinding, everyday bullshit <laughs> variety, right? Yeah. Um, and I think most of us have really never questioned the presence of stress in our life. It's just kind of there. And so I do find that once I start digging with clients about like what is good about the stress in your life, we discover that there's some reason that they're attached to it. And I don't say that in like a blaming way. It's, it's more like um, they've organized their life around the stress because it fulfills some kind of function for them. And letting that go would be really scary. Um, for a lot of people, it's a control thing, right? I have to get super anxious about a whole lot of stuff because if I don't, I will feel out of control of the world, right? Like I have yeah. to sort of mentally, it's like, you know, I have a weird fear of uh, flying, which I completely recognize as irrational. But like when I'm on a plane, I'm like mentally willing the plane to stay in the air, right? <laughs> <laughs> to the power of my psychic abilities. And and I think a lot of people do this with, with their lives. They, they overthink, they ruminate, they, you know, try to keep their plane in the air through with their mind. So, again, I like to begin, before I even tell them about how they should change, I begin by getting curious about what what that stress is doing for them and, and what would suck about having me give that up because for a lot of people it's really scary to give up the stress. Um, and then I like to assign a mind-body scan habit. And so this comes back to building the awareness of, like, you know what, before you try to relax just notice like what is even happening with you and so you know a mind body scan is just super simple it's like you just sort of take a minute or two and you sort of just scan down your body and you just notice like whatever is there like if your shoulders are tight your ears are i don't know itchy or whatever if it's cold um and you notice what you're thinking and what you're sensing physically and what you're feeling emotionally if you can notice that and and then you just jot down some notes and then over time you start to build this picture of what's going on for you so i find that like a week or two of doing that with clients um i don't even need to really talk much about stress management because they'll come to me and they'll be like whoa i had no idea like how torqued up i was or how tense i was and this is something i'd like to change and then from there once they're ready we start to go with like some breathing stuff and um you know something really really simple that they can do anywhere anytime breathing stuff is great i find you know because you can do it in, like 10 seconds or 20 seconds yeah, like I remember uh, working with one client and like you said, like male, like kind of like top exec in his company and super stressed out. And I'm like, honestly, right before bed, like lay down face first and do some belly breathing and you'll probably fall asleep real fast and not like keep waking up every hour to check your phone if you got a new email or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, it helps quite a bit because then you actually take time to, you know, get your brain to turn off because you're just focusing on pushing your tummy into the mattress to get your diaphragm going. 
yeah, you, you've given them a competing thing, right? It gets back to the idea of giving them giving them some kind of activity that competes. Um, another great one is actually singing. If you have clients that like to sing, you're like having them sing in their car or whatever, the breathing for singing competes with anxiety breathing. So if you can just be belting out some of your, you know, your slow jams or whatever in the car on the way home, uh, you know, like something about like 15 minutes of that will uh, will often really disrupt that sort of anxiety breathing pattern. That's awesome. <laughs> my fiance does that all the time. Like when she drives her car, she'll have her windows down, music blaring, and always singing. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. She must be super relaxed. <laughs> she is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we go to the gym together and we, because uh, I'm already at the gym in the morning, so she'll drive. And then when I'm driving home and she's behind me, I'll look in my rearview mirror and I'm like, oh, there she is singing again. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, bye, bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, do you have any, like, tips or tricks to help clients to keep on track if they're forgetful or, you know, they're just, like, caught up in their work and they're like, oh, shit, I have to do this thing and I still haven't done it? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're sort of, like, active reminders and there's passive reminders, right? So passive reminders are, like... Um, things that you don't have to think about. So a good example of that is I leave my bike lock on my bike. It's, it's just there. Um, so now I don't have to go looking for it. I don't have to remember where I put it. I don't have to remember to bring it. It's just there. So there's lots of little things like that that you can sort of have people do, like keep your running shoes in your car, right? So now you haven't, now you haven't forgotten your workout stuff or like, you know, a spare change of clothes in your car. Um, and that's just some some easy things. So now it's like the, the the memory work of remembering workout clothes is off the table. And then I'm a huge fan of reminders. And these are things that clients can set for themselves. There's all kinds of reminder apps. I you know I use them all the time. And anything with timers and kind of calendars. Like my life is full of calendar reminders because I'm a little bit forgetful. So I outsource that. Right? Computers are much better at remembering things than I am. So calendar reminders are a, a part of my life. And I can send them to my email, my phone whatever. Um, and then as the coach, you can also send reminders to people. I think text messaging is a very underrated, um, coaching tool and you can automate that as a coach, right? Like you could do it individually if you wanted, but there are programs that will send text messages for you at a certain time, certain day, whatever. So that's super handy. And, you know, often busy clients are very tied to their phones. Uh, and so it's like the natural medium for, getting hold of people. Um, so, you know, you can have a series of things and just sort of figure out like, where is this person falling down? Do they have a lack of a routine? Like sometimes if you can get people into a very particular, like ritualized sequence of events, almost like a checklist, like I do this and then I do this and then I do this. Um, like before I leave the house, I'm like, lip balm, keys, wallet, cell phone, done. There's like a four ch like item checklist. Sometimes it's like a routine or a ritual for people, like a meal prep ritual or something like that, that the coach can help them develop and practice. And then it just becomes second nature and they don't have to think about it anymore. So like the less you can get people thinking, the better <laughs> in a funny kind of way. Yeah, like uh, one of my clients, he has the uh, Apple Watch and they has like a, some sort of setting on there where if he's sitting for a certain uh, amount of time, it'll actually start vibrating and it won't stop until you like, 
physically get up and move around the office for a certain distance, and then you're allowed to go back down to your desk. Yeah, that kind of stuff is great. Like, we live in an age now where really we can be reminded of anything, right? Like, in 2016, there's no reason to forget anything. <laughs> yeah. You can even hire, like, a virtual assistant to, like, I don't know, literally phone you or email if you're that bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> That would be awesome. I was I was actually looking into that, and I was like, man, this is tempting. They could do a lot of the stuff that I don't want to do. Totally. Um, that's why I was also going to say, like, with, like, those Fitbits, like, the fact that they give you that 10,000-step, like, marker, it just makes people, like, keep looking at their watch, like, okay, I need to do another 5,000 today, and it actually, like, tricks their brain to focus on something else to just get more active. Yeah, well, Pokemon Go is another great example of that, right? Yes. You're just focus on getting your little Pokemons. <laughs> I got, I tried that. When, like, I think the second weekend it came out, I was like, oh, my God, this is so addictive. <laughs> and then the next day, my fiance's like, hey, you want to go on a hike? And I'm like, yeah, let's go on a hike. She's like, bring your phone. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was hilarious, but it's amazing. Like, it took them, like, 24 hours and got, like, the whole United States to start going outside. And then you start seeing stories of uh, that one kid who caught all the Pokemon and lost 25 pounds because the amount of like places he kept walking to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's such a great example too of, of making this into a game as well. Right. And I think for whatever reason, like, some people got this weird idea that this all had to be like this terrible chore, right? This horrible chore that we just add one more chore to like the list of chores we already have. It becomes this one, one more crappy thing on our to-do list. And I, I really like to flip that for clients and see if we can make it into some kind of game, especially if they have kids, you know, like, okay, go to the grocery store and I don't know, find something orange, whatever. Like it just, it's, it's gotta be fun as much as possible. And it's got to speak to what brings people joy, what keeps them entertained. And so it's really helpful to understand what gets people hooked on things, like in a good way, what keeps them enjoying things. Like humans really like games, they like playing, they like stuff like that. So the more we can capture that spirit for people, uh, the better. Yeah. Uh, so I got one more question for you, and it was sent in from one of my clients, and they were wondering what kind of like dietary specs you should have if you are pre, during, or post-menopausal. Oh, that's a big question. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I think I would almost before I even start with the food, I would start with the mindset. Okay. Because this. It's a time where you really need a huge amount of compassion and love for yourself because things are changing all the time. So I'm 42, almost 43, um, and I actually accidentally put myself into uh, early menopause for a period of time with just like training too heavily and that kind of stuff. So I got to have like the, the preview of menopause. Like, so I'm going to have menopause 2.0 in like 10 years, which should be awesome. awesome. But, but, you know, so I've already kind of gone through this, which is super fun. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, like, so... So I feel like what I would have loved is someone to tell me things will be different every day almost or every week or every month. And so there's going to be a lot of things that you can't control. Now, you can engage in like the best possible choices or like, you know, taking good care of yourself, but there's going to be just weird stuff. Like you're just going to wake up one day and for that 24 hours, your digestion will be weird. And there's just no reason for it. It just is that way. Or, you know, you're retaining water or you're not, or you have energy or you don't. So things will just be kind of weird. And I say this because I think that 
if you don't know this, it can be quite perplexing. Like what happens during menopause is that obviously hormone production declines, but it's not like this clear linear process. It's actually kind of uneven. So you're, and because hormones are pulsatile, like which means they get release these little sort of puffs and bursts and I call them like little hormone farts, right? <laughs> um, so it's a, you get this kind of weird, random, uh, asymmetrical hormone experience. So, um, so you don't always know what's going to happen. And so if you're going through this process, you need to be open to this kind of ebb and flow and change and not, you know, just not having certainty about how things are going to go. Um, your energy needs will change. So you know, you're going to have to sort of figure out how to accommodate reduced energy needs, which means that your, your body's just not burning as much energy as it used to. Um, so you'll probably start putting on some weight. Um, you'll probably start putting it on a little bit more around your midsection as the hormonal profile shifts. Um, so your energy needs will go down, so you have to figure out how to eat less. But one of the things that will help with that, which is quite important, is to keep that intake high. Um, it'll help control your appetite, but it will also help you keep that metabolic health that is so important for all of this stage of life. Because as estrogen declines, your um, risk of cardiovascular disease goes up. So, um, you know, really keeping that metabolic health will go a long way. So, you know, keep the protein high, keep, um, you know, looking for those whole foods, those, you know, fresh foods, unprocessed foods, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, if you could eat them, whatever. Um, so in terms of the composition of what you're eating, you're probably not going to change it so much. Uh, you know, your protein needs will stay relatively significant. Uh, you know, you'll be eating all those whole fresh foods. Really what changes the most, I would say, would be the energy intake. So over time, you want to be sort of slowly lowering that energy intake to, you know, to meet whatever your body needs. And of course, hopefully, you know, you're exercising and weight training, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's really nothing special, if that makes sense, um, about this period other than, um, you know, I mean, some people find that increasing soy intake helps a little bit with hot flashes. That's, I think it varies a lot from woman to woman. We're definitely learning that there's a lot of individuality with how your hormones change, you know, what your genetic makeup is, if you have certain receptors or don't. So I'm kind of hesitant to say like, oh, everyone should eat soy because it helps hot flashes. That's not necessarily true. But what I would say is keep a diary, keep a journal of what you're noticing. Are you noticing hot flashes? Are you noticing losing sleep? Are you noticing weight gain? Where, where is it? How fast is it? Um, and see if you can link it to stuff. Because one thing that will often happen is you'll, you'll have these emerging food sensitivities. So maybe at age 30, you could go out drinking and it wouldn't matter, right? Yeah. At age 40, you have a glass of red wine and your body's like, hell no, right? Yeah. So, so you may notice emerging food sensitivities or you may start to link um, things that you're eating to symptoms. So for me now, I really notice a link between alcohol, sugar, uh, and grains, and particular symptoms, which is really interesting. Um, sugar especially, it seems to make symptoms flare. But you know, so, so see if you can kind of track what you're experiencing and then see if you can make connections between what you're experiencing and choices that you're making and obviously ideally you know, move towards choices that make you feel 
as good as you possibly can. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but it's a, it's a great question. And I guess like, I feel like the take home for me would always be have so much compassion for yourself during this period <laughs> because it's a cuckoo bananas period, honestly. Like sometimes you're going to think you're just going nuts, um, but you know, really try to hang in there. <laughs> yeah. I kind of like that low, like having the mindset and kind of just listening to your body and kind of playing detective to see what works and what doesn't. Yeah, it's so, so individual. And, you know, I always hate, like, um, these instructions to women that are like, oh, you should do this and you should do that. And, like, I'm like, come on, man. Like, we're all individuals. We all have different life trajectories and histories and makeup. And, you know, what's awesome for me may not be awesome for someone else. So really honor your individuality. I think that's so important. Perfect. Uh, so that's all the questions I got for you. And uh, if you can kind of tell people where they can find you on the internet, if you're on any kind of social media or any kind of projects you're working on next. Well, uh, you can mostly, I mean, I'm very easy to find on Facebook. You can just, you know, search for me on Facebook. I'm, I'm pretty active on Facebook. And I know it's kind of like supposedly an old person medium, but <laughs> <laughs> I've largely abandoned Twitter. I don't know. I just... Like, I, and I was an early adopter of it, but I've never really figured it out. So, um, so Facebook is a great way to find me. You can also read tons of stuff for free at Precision Nutrition, precisionnutrition.com. Just go to our blog. There's like a bazillion things for free, lots of really good articles and stuff. Um, and then you can also find me at stumptuous.com. That's my website. So it's S-T-U-M-P-T. U-O-U-S, I think. Um, I'm really bad at spelling verbally. <laughs> Stumptuous. Um, so, I mean, you can you can find me there. And again, there's tons of stuff there. It's all free. Um, you know, I've got a couple e-books. One is free, one is not. So um, pretty much, you know, look for me on the Googles and, and you will definitely find lots of free, I think, good stuff. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so thank you for your time. And that was that was freaking awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No problem. There you have it. Four of the top episodes of 2016 on this very special episode that brought back a lot of awkward memories. Like, if you listen to my podcast now and you listen to these four and you're just like, what the hell is with this fucking guy not, like, being the way he is now? Like... When I interviewed these people, like Georgie Fear, Tony, Josh, and Chris Scott Dixon, I was so nervous. Like, I remember having anxiety right before the episode started, and I just, like, wanted to, like, cancel. I just didn't want to do it. And I remember always, like, sweating profusely during the interviews. Like, I'm surprised I didn't pass out when I interviewed these people because I looked up to them for years, and now I'm, like, talking to them over Skype, so... I apologize for the awkwardness, you know, you can even notice like the music was different and like the sound quality was different, but here we are, 2019, three years later, and I'm still crushing it, still trying to make this better, so thank you for bearing with me if you've been a listener since day one, you're amazing, I fucking love you, thank you for the support, and I'm going to continue giving you the best fitness and health advice, and let me know if you have any feedback. I would love for you to reach out, and many of you have because you've been adding me on Facebook because you've been listening to me. So if you haven't done so already, hit the show notes, 
add me on Facebook. I'm going to say what's up. Let me know which episodes were the best, who you want me to interview next, and if there's any topics you'd like me to cover on a solo episode, let me know. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you guys so much. Thank you for the support. And here's to another three years, six years, nine years. Who knows what's going to happen? But thank you. Until next time, you guys.